This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Holy cow! It's the day of the debates. <laughs> is that a good thing for you? Or are you going to, does that just mean, oh, great, now it's going to be, you know, you're tempted to pull away from the football game tonight. Anyway, it's uh, October 3rd, World Day of Bullying Prevention, Virus Appreciation Day. It's a big day. Bully Prevention Day, also the day of the debates. I was going to say, there's, is there a correlation? Apparently. Apparently so. So uh, tons of fun, tons of interesting things uh, coming down the pike for all of us. Um, we will get to uh, we'll get to all of this. So much we've got to talk about. It's uh, it's lumberjack day as well. I'm a lumberjack and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack. And Monty he's Python's okay. lumberjack he song. You gotta love that. Who doesn't love a good lumberjack song? In fact, even Jeff. Jeff, is that a lumberjack shirt you're wearing? Some might say. Y'all dolled up. He's all platted out. All platted out for the uh, for the big debates. He's all dressed up. Mm-hmm. We'll get to that. We've got so much to talk about and so little time. So we I've will. Got, uh, I've what? got historic TV ratings. For you mean potential for tonight? Because tonight is supposed to be everyone's watching. Three yeah. out of four Americans say they're going to watch. Tonight. And by the way, when they say that, who's saying that? The people like the cable networks phone. that are sending that want everybody to go watch it. Says yeah. who? They're all just kind of pumping this up. Yeah. So then there's uh, this is for the football game though, right? Yeah, it's a big no. football yeah. game tonight. No football game apparently will just be. I saw yesterday uh, ESPN was running an ad saying, "Hey, while the debate's on, you can watch us on you know online streaming, or there's other options. You can watch both at the same time, picture in picture, anything to get people <laughs> to still watch this football game." I know. That's what Donald Trump was so about. But it's Saints about. and Falcons, so I don't know if anyone's really interested anyways. They're mm. both kind of mm-hmm. eh, middle of the pack. Kind of bland. Um, so we'll talk about ratings as well. So, I mean, what what would be a historical rating number? And I've I've pulled the numbers. Okay. Just little spoiler. Good. Mostly Super Bowls in the top 20 <laughs> of all time. We'll talk. See, that leads us to our first guest today who wrote the book Against Democracy. Yeah. The reason we need to get rid of democracy, this author says, is because no one is informed enough to have a clue who they're voting for. Is it all democracy or just elements of it? Just I think not. Yeah. I mean, he he wants probably some of the better half of democracy. It's just the who should choose like representative democracy that works because then you have more informed people. Right. You know, supposedly making a lot of your legislation. The dilemma is in the presidential election. A lot of people shouldn't be voting, he argues, because they're not informed. They're not informed. Right. So should we have tests that you have to pass in order to become – in order to vote? Do you have to have like a minimum understanding of the economy in order to vote? Mmm. The tangled web. Jason Brennan will be joining us talking about his book, Against Democracy. Um, But first, let's get to the headlines with Sadie Nielsen. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie, what's up? 
Janet Brown, the executive director of the Commission on Presidential Debates, said Sunday that she does not believe moderators should play a large role in fact-checking each candidate. Speaking on CNN, Brown said the candidates should be the judges of what the other says. The first presidential debate between Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton is tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern. Republican vice presidential nominee Mike Pence promised Sunday his running mate, Donald Trump, will absolutely tell the truth while debating Hillary Clinton on Monday because he always speaks straight from his mind and straight from his heart. Trump is going to speak the truth to the American people, Pence said in an interview. That's why you see the tremendous momentum in this campaign. Green Party nominee Jill Stein was excluded from the first presidential debate along with Libertarian Gary Johnson, but she's planning a protest to take place outside the building where the event will be held Monday evening. After Let Jill Debate rally, both Stein and Johnson will live tweet their own remarks throughout the debate. And finally... What's up? Doctors at a Chinese hospital said a baby was born with a total of 31 fingers and toes. Oh boy. And he will receive surgeries free of charge to remove these. Um, it shows the six-month-year-old boy's hands, which bear a total of 16 fingers and feet and a total of 15 toes. Oh, poor kid. I know. The boy's parents said they were reluctant to seek medical help for the boy's condition due to the expected cost, but the hospital agreed to waive most of the fees for his care until he reaches the age of 16. There you go. So there you go. See, a good story. A good ending for him. Healthy ending. Yeah. Eight, boy, 32 fingers 30, and toes. 31. 31. So 16 fingers and 15 toes. Oh, boy. Can you imagine? No. Can you? I mean, it's already hard enough to make sure you don't slam your kids' fingers in the doors. I know, right? But when you got that many. Wow, Sadie, thank you. That's great that they're taking care of him like that. That's what we need in this crazy world. More people taking care of people. You know, sing that song for me, Jeff? People. <laughs> people who need people. Yeah. Hey, um, crazy, crazy day today. So much to talk about. It uh, It's the day of the debates. The debates are tonight, and of course, that means head-to-head competition between Donald Trump, Hillary Clinton. Apparently, Hillary Clinton has been doing three-a-days, trying to figure out uh, exactly how to take down the Donster. And is it going to be that easy? I'd say not. I'm going to beat her so easily. I haven't even started on her yet. <laughs> the Donald, supposedly... He he's hasn't been doing as much prep, which I don't know if I believe that. Yeah, everything you hear is in a, a way to position the candidate for tonight. Yeah, everyone's arguing. The Clintons uh, team are arguing that Donald is too much of a liar. He has too many lies that he tells, so she shouldn't have to spend her entire time fact checking the Donster. It feels like the Clinton campaign is trying to lower expectations. Right, they're trying to make it, you know, so they're they're kind of showing it might be a little unfair because they're letting Trump get away with all this stuff, and no one's fact checking him. And at the same time, the Trump campaign's trying to, I don't know, show that he's not as stressed out about this. It's not that big of a deal. Again, they're trying to lower expectations. Yeah. Also, but the problem is, it's all going to be delivered, right? And so tonight, you're going to have a moment or two. I'm assuming where there will be a contrast. And if Donald comes off looking really good today, mm. he could pull ahead in a few of these places. Like Pennsylvania, he's only down two points. Nobody can believe that. Why is he only down two points there? And tonight, what if he sneaks a little... What if he throws 15 lies at her and she can't handle all these lies? Liar! Liar! <laughs> Liar! little preview of the debate tonight. By the way, over the weekend, Politico, they did yes. a five-day analysis... 
and uh, so that suggested in just over 1.5 hours of remarks last week, the former Secretary of State averaged one falsehood every 12 minutes. The, se- the former Secretary did? Hillary Clinton. One falsehood every 12 minutes. What's Donald's numbers? Well, it goes on in raw numbers. Clinton made eight erroneous <gasps> statements in five days. So she also has a, a, a statement problem. Trump averaged about one falsehood every three minutes and 15 seconds. <laughs> right over over these uh, five hours, it. five hours of remarks and raw numbers. That's eighty-seven erroneous statements in mm. five days. Nailed it. So she made eight in five days. He made yeah. eighty-seven in but, five days. So why is she so worried? I mean, because he's outlying her. The I think it's the volume. Yeah. Of false statements and trying to you can't. There's no time to fact check everything. He no. just keeps you know. Hitting you and hitting you and hitting you, and you can't go back and wait a second. Let's talk about that one because three more just happened. Right. So she, the, she doesn't want to spend her entire spend. time just saying he's a liar. So she'd rather that the the panel there, Lester Holt and and company, that they do something about it. Well, just Lester. Just Lester. He's the only one on oh, the he's stage. He's the only one. Yeah. And he apparently can't have an earpiece. Really? No one could be. There was a big debate over earpieces. Okay. He apparently has to wing it. So he can't have producers in his ears saying, ask this, at that, ask this. At that point as a moderator, I would not fact check. I no would way. Let, I would let the deb- the people in the debate deal with it. Well, I, I'd have him stand up beforehand and explain how he's going to do this. Candy Crowley created a, created a really crazy moment with Mitt Romney by fact checking. Yes. And then how do you ever balance the fact check? Are we going to make sure that every fact told is true? And so then you're going to go back and rebut what they said? Yeah, that's not going to work. No. In fact, uh, isn't that part of the debate? Part of the debate, that's what George Stephanopoulos said, is isn't that debating? Debating is just, you know, misinformation for misinformation for misinformation, just spinning, spinning, spinning. What's the big deal? He used more eloquent language, though. Wow. Okay. Well, he is a Clinton operative, so what do you need to do? Yeah, totally. So uh, here's here's some of the... Clinton's team arguing why fact-checking is so important. All that we're asking is that if Donald Trump lies, uh, that it's pointed out. It's unfair to ask for Hillary both to play traffic cop uh, with Trump, uh, make sure that his lies are uh, corrected, um, and also to present her vision for what she wants to do for the American But isn't that people. what a debater is supposed to do? Well, I, I, I think Donald Trump's special. We haven't seen anything like this. We normally go into a debate with two candidates who have a depth of experience, who have rolled out clear concrete plans uh, and who don't lie, frankly, as frequently as Donald Trump does. So we're saying this is a special circumstance, a special debate, uh, and Hillary should be given some time to actually talk about what she wants to do to make a difference in people's lives. She shouldn't have to spend the whole debate correcting the record. Hmm. The more you know, the more you know they're lying. So they're saying he's special. He's got a gift. He's a gifted liar, and because of his special lying abilities, he needs to be checked. However, the Trump campaign, Kellyanne Conway, she has a different argument. I really don't appreciate campaigns thinking it is the job of the media to go and be these virtual fact checkers and that these debate moderators should somehow do their bidding. They picked on Matt Lauer after the commander in chief debate for him. We thought he did a great job, but they didn't like the fact that Hillary Clinton was asked about her email server and her vote in Iraq. That's not Matt Lauer's fault. And Lester Holtz, he's a, he's a respected, brilliant newsman. He'll do a good job tomorrow night as a moderator. It's not his job. Last week, Trump said he was a Democrat. So they're stacking the 
you know, they're stacking the, the game against us before yeah. we even begin here. We understand we're going to overcome this is kind of the message Trump sent out. Then they told him a couple of days later that Lester Holt's been a registered Republican since 2003. Yeah, but how registered is he? So this morning, Kellyanne Conway, who was just speaking there, was on Morning Joe on MSNBC, and they were trying to say, okay, so he said this about Lester Holt without ever having any information whatsoever on this. Yeah, that's just how Donald was. Why did he lie? And she's like, you can't lie if you don't know what the facts are. So how was that a lie? Yeah, why do you guys keep talking about all the facts? And then the guy goes, so is is that what Trump's going to do as president? Just go off and start talking about things before he knows the facts? And then they had to go to commercial because it's TV. we got to go to break. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and you're like, oh, this is getting interesting. And then they shut it down. There was a big uh, hullabaloo, too, about um, Hillary Clinton's going to have maybe Mark Cuban in the audience. He will be there, I heard, this morning. like a rival to Donald Trump. So mm-hmm. Donald said, well, fine, then I'm just going to bring Jennifer Flowers. Ugh. Who allegedly had a, what, a 12-year affair yeah. with uh, Bill Clinton. Right. And then one by one, all of these other women started saying, hey, what about me? I want a seat. And Jennifer Flowers accepted. Yeah. She was going to be there, and then that's been updated. In fact, uh, Mike Pence, uh, vice presidential candidate with Donald Trump, he cleared it up. I want to ask you, will Jennifer Flowers be there? Uh, Jennifer Flowers will not be attending the d- debate tomorrow night. And but Donald Trump was, uh, was, was using the tweet yesterday really to mock uh, an effort by Hillary Clinton and her campaign to really distract attention uh, from where the, people are, the American people are going to be focused tomorrow night. Yeah. Do, you, do you think someone went and thought, you know, that's maybe a road too far? Oh, yeah. I'm sure it was Kellyanne Conway thinking, oh, Donald. It's one thing to bring in someone who a – bill, a fellow billionaire who has been very outspoken against Trump and some right. of the things he's been doing. It's another thing to bring in somebody's alleged mistress. Yeah. Don't you think it would be a lot more interesting if they started pitching ideas and Mark Cuban could oh, say whether he's in or out? Think it. Yeah. That's a great idea. Because really, they just ought to maybe not have Lester Holt, but the entire Shark Tank panel. Yeah. And then we just choose you a just, new CEO. You, you pitch new ideas and they shoot him down. Although, I think Donald would have an advantage there. If Lester Holt could introduce the, the debate like it's a nightline, is it nightline or dateline that he does? I think, is it dateline? dateline. That would make it a lot more interesting, too. Man, so exciting. <sighs> so glad it's it's the first of three and... It'll be over tonight. So just think of it that way. By the time you wake up tomorrow and we're talking tomorrow, you'll be able to know that there was probably no winner except everybody claiming to have won. There will also be 30 or 40 lies, Pinocchios, checked, fact-checked, triple fact-checked. Liar! 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 A preview for Hillary Clinton's opening statements tonight. Oh, brother. Happy Lumberjack Day. Such a great day. September 26th. Earlier, I think I said it was like October 3rd or something. I was trying to move the week ahead. Trying to trying to get to my vacation. If only it worked that way. Ah, blasted. September 26th, Lumberjack Day. It's also Batman Day. Day you're going to want to celebrate. We'll be celebrating it all day long. Stick with us when we come back. We're talking about democracy. Are we just going to have to change it up so we can get better candidates? Stick with us. We'll be right back. Batman. 
That's who we need. Batman will clear this up. Ah, happy Batman Day, folks. Mm. Well, you know, I don't think Batman's going to be able to fix our bigger problem with uh, with our democracy. Uh, our next guest has got an idea that might, you know, it might irk you a little bit. He's questioning democracy for democracy's sake. As Americans, we defend and fight for the cause of democracy. In fact, we are all well known for helping other countries develop their own forms of a democratic government. And this raises some questions. Is democracy the best form of government? Have we found a better way for the government to represent the people? Here to speak to us today um, about uh, democracy is uh, author Jason Brennan. He's a Ph.D., is the Robert J. Elizabeth Flanagan Family Chair of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. And he's here to talk about his book, Against Democracy. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. What a boy. And I, I've been looking through all your books. It's so – I love uh, – you like to – you like to – spark debate, apparently. Well, that's supposed to be the job of philosophers is to uh, make us question some of the things we take for granted. Absolutely. And we've talked a lot um, with, in fact, a lot of academics lately about democracy. And the along with democracy comes the responsibility to be informed. And it seems like that's one of the big arguments you're making about why maybe it's time to to th- rethink our, our democracy. Yeah, absolutely. So we've been uh, conducting studies on voters for the past 65 years, and the results are really just uniformly depressing. It turns out that most voters, not only do they have no background in the social sciences or anything like that, but they, most of them don't know even the basic facts, such as who their, candidate, who their congresspeople are, what direction the country is going in terms of unemployment, mm. crime. And uh, it, ignorance has been remarkably stable, even though now getting information is incredibly cheap since we all carry smartphones with us all the time. Yeah, it almost seems like we've we've reached a kind of a major crossing point because not only are we not informed, but we also have a, a higher ability through these communication forums and means to actually be misinformed, misled, and distracted at levels beyond history. That's right. Uh, as one of my friends, Robin Hansen, likes to say, uh, politics is not about policy, which he means for most people, the purpose of being in a political movement is to affiliate themselves with others, and they form a kind of tribal identity where they're antagonistic towards members of the other tribes. So the, Red, the uh, Republican-Democratic rivalry is sort of like the Red Sox-Yankees rivalry, but angrier. <laughs> It's true. And tonight we see it. I mean, in fact, it's so interesting. Tonight, it's got to be – well, let me just ask you. What are you thinking about tonight? The, the whole discussion the last day has been about who, who's lying, who should be you know, fact-checking the candidates during the debate. But it almost just seems like it's going to be a lie fest. Oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I had a, an op-ed a couple years ago said called about Trump, really, that was called Why Do uh, Smart Politicians Say Dumb Things? And it's true, they're, they're going to say some things that are false, they're going to say some things that are manipulative, they're going to obscure and obfuscate. And the reason they do that is because that will appeal to the people that are listening to them. Um, it, it wouldn't make sense for them to get up and talk policy in a sharp way, the way that an economist might, because they'll just turn off voters. Mm. So in the end, you're, you're, are you really against democracy, or are you trying to just push the edge and say, we need a better way? Yeah, I have, I have a number of goals. So one is to desacralize politics. So there's this quotation by uh, Auburn Herbert, who's a political theorist and former politician, 
where he says, the instinct of worship is still so strong upon us that having nearly worn out our capacity for treating kings and such of persons as sacred, we're ready to invest the majority of our own selves with the same kind of reverence. So mm. I think what's going on is that in American politics and elsewhere, we treat political participation as if it were sacred, and that clouds our thinking about it. Um, so in a sense, democracy compared to the other forms of governments that we've had has been the best type of system overall. So I'm not here to say right. uh, American politics is a disaster. And in, in, in a historical respect, it's doing incredibly well. But there are these systematic problems where because individual votes count for so little, most people don't inform themselves. They don't think rationally about politics. It's not because they're bad people. It's because the incentives are all wrong. And it might be worth thinking about alternative systems that try to draw out the knowledge that's out there in the world rather than just allowing everyone to, say, have an equal say. Well, and that's what's interesting is it seems like everybody has an opinion, everybody has a say, but very few people want to actually go inform their opinion and go educate their their ideas before they speak. Um, in fact, you call it as an alternative plan. Is it epistocracy? Yeah, epistocracy. So Explain that. Yeah, so an epistocratic system, which to some people seem un-American, though arguably it's what the founding fathers had in mind, uh, in an epistocratic system, you're not all guaranteed an equal right to vote simply in virtue of birth. Rather, in one way or another, uh, some people will have more votes than others on the basis of their knowledge. So a simple form of it, maybe not the best form, is one where uh, you start off with zero votes, and if you pass a very basic quiz of knowledge just on the very basic facts, you acquire a vote. You could have systems in which uh, democracies pass legislation, but epistocratic councils, say a council of economic advisors, would have the right to veto legislation in the same way the Supreme Court would. Um, you could have systems in which uh, everyone votes, but there's weighted voting where you take a quiz and you fill out your demographic information at the same time that you vote, and then use this to statistically determine what the American public would want if it were fully informed. And you do that rather than what the uninformed public wants. And there's a, a variety of other uh, versions of the epistocracy. Is it, it seems like in a way that that is a republic. It, it, it's, isn't that what we have our uh, elected leaders that are supposedly supposed to be in, uh, are in more informed that then are also representing us as, as, our, as our representative in Congress? Right. So we are a republic, not a pure democracy, and that, in part of the point of that is to sort of reduce the impact of voter incompetence. Um, and it's true that politicians do have a significant amount of leeway. Bureaucracies have a significant amount of leeway, and sometimes that's good and sometimes that's bad. But at the end of the day, politicians do still have to uh, win elections. And to do that, they have to some degree to tailor their positions to what they think the average or median voter in their district wants. And so uh, voters do have quite a bit of impact and power over what politicians tend to do, although we shouldn't say it's, we shouldn't exaggerate that politicians do have some independence. But what if the median voter would fail Econ 101? What if the median voter has the basic facts wrong? They think crime is going down, up when it's going down, or they, they don't know how much money is being spent on this or that. Well, then the median voter is going to choose the wrong things, and politicians are going to go along with what the median voter, the median voter's mistakes just to please them. Mm. In fact, you bring up a good point in one of your New York Times op-eds about the TPP uh, trade agreement that most economists say you know, will open up trade for, uh, in a global way, except the uninformed public are all against it. Yeah, I mean, so there are a number of famous economists who didn't like the way that the agreement was written, and they would prefer a different kind of agreement. But really what I, what I mean by that in the abstract is just 
economists both left and right. Uh, it's not an ideological thing for them. Both the left and right wing and moderate and libertarian and conservative and everyone other kind of economists, they're in favor of trade with other countries. They think overall it's good for people. And they even think it's good for working class Americans, or maybe it's especially good for them. But then when we ask most voters, they subscribe. The, the average voter in the United States believes the thing that Adam Smith is arguing against in The Wealth of Nations. So in 1776, Adam Smith writes against this view called mercantilism. And we know through polling data that most Americans are still mercantilists. Yeah. Is that is that capitalism? Uh, well, yeah. So mercantilism is a uh, it's a theory that what government ought to do is have lots of wars, conquer lots of other countries, um, huh. have lots of exports, but no imports and that kind of open thing. more markets. For the yeah. Yeah. Interesting is because um, you it, oh, it's such an interesting push you're, you're making here. And, and I think even just all of us opening up our minds enough to realize that. If you don't like that idea that you're proposing, then get informed. I mean, this is just start getting more informed. Yeah, I agree. But we'll never be informed to the level of an economist, right? I mean, we can't know everything. No, and, uh, you know, democracy can work if you have a large range of people who know quite a bit and have sophisticated mental models of the world, and they all kind of come together to vote. Um, so having many heads is better than having just a few heads rule, mm. but that only that's only true to a certain extent. If it turns out that almost everyone is completely unsophisticated, then then the system doesn't work. Does it? It seems like there's a downside to this, where only a certain class, only a certain status, um, would even have the 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 right to vote. Then we would only. I mean, in a way, it seems like white rich Republicans would win this battle. Yeah, so it's true right now that uh, if you look at who has more information than others, uh, and this has been a stable trend over 65 years, certain groups have more information than others, and these factors compound. So if you give, on a, on a quiz of basic political knowledge, a upper-middle-class white uh, male uh, religious attendant who lives on the coast will uh, <laughs> score two to three times higher than, say, a poor, uneducated, unemployed black woman. Um, so there is this worry that there would be class or racial disparities in any kind of epistocracy. Um, I'm, I'm not as worried about that as some people might be, even though it sounds really evil on its face, because in a sense, it's not enough to get uh, you know disadvantaged people to vote to serve their interests. For the, to serve their interests, they'd have to know, well, are they voting for politicians and policies that are actually going to help them? And that requires tremendous amounts of social scientific knowledge, which many people lack. And and you know, I often will say things like if if you're worried about that, it, it, but what about, say, Trump? Trump is appealing to a certain class right. of voters, and, and they're often low. At first, they were low-information voters, and it might very well be that like, getting rid of people like that is, is one of the effects of this kind of policy. Mm. I guess the other, the other thing to, to keep in mind here is that voters don't vote selfishly. It's a big myth that everyone votes their pocketbooks. It's been studied to at great length, and it turns out people vote altruistically, um, they all have the right motives when they vote. The question is just whether they have the right cognition, whether they know what they're talking about. Hmm, yeah, if they're informed. Interesting um, stuff. We're speaking with Jason Brennan, Dr. Jason Brennan, who's the author of the book Against Democracy. He is a, a professor at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. We'll continue the discussion when we come back. He's also broken down Americans into three broad types, hobbits, hooligans, and Vulcans. We'll figure out what that means. And uh, boy, folks, if you don't want to lose your democracy, maybe it's time to get majorly informed and uh, and start thinking, improving your 
your ability, your skills to understand what's really going on in these elections. Crazy stuff. Stick with us. More with the Jason Brennan when we come back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Joining us on the line is Jason Brennan, and uh, Jason is the author to the book of the book uh, Against Democracy, and is talking to us about the impact of democracy itself. It might uh, be it might be creating other problems. One problem inherent is simply the idea that. Um, we might have a less informed electorate. And because we have a less informed electorate, then we're not necessarily creating the highest form of policymaking, the highest solutions, the best uh, solutions for everybody in general. Um, Instead, we just have a lot of people making decisions based out of, I guess, emotion and misinformation. Jason Brennan is uh, is the Robert J. and Elizabeth Flanagan Family Chair of Strategy, Economics, Ethics, and Public Policy at Georgetown University's McDonough School of Business. He's the author of seven books. Uh, including Against Democracy that we're talking about today. And he focuses on democratic theory, ethics of voting, competence and power, freedom and moral foundations of commercial society. Jason, thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you. Is Okay, so is is the idea that we have a less educated, a less informed electorate, is it a byproduct of the de- democratic process? Is that what's – is it the process itself that keeps us less informed? Yeah, I think it is. So when – when early the American founders were worried about the uninformed electorate, what they had in mind was just the fact that people were already uneducated. But they didn't realize, we now know, that it's, it's worse than that. Uh, so what I like to say to people that when I'm giving talks on this is imagine you're in a final exam uh, for a large class with, say, a 1,000 students. And the professor says to you, I'm going to g- average all your grades together and give you the same grade. In that kind of system, you probably wouldn't study very hard because if you work really hard, you'll still get the same grade as everybody else, and if you slack off, you'll still get the same grade. So experimentally, when professors actually try doing this, it turns out people all get Fs. Hmm. And something like that's going on with democracy. Uh, How we vote makes a huge difference, but how any individual one of us votes makes no difference. So we have very little incentive to be informed. We don't get punished for being wrong. We don't get rewarded for being right. We don't get rewarded for doing homework. We don't get punished for... uh, indulging our worst biases and fantasies. Um, so it, it actually incentivizes us to be worse than we otherwise would be. We had a professor um, from, he was an economist from Europe, uh, France, I believe, that had a different proposal for how the voting system should be, where you basically rank every candidate on a variety of topics and issues. Mm-hmm. Have, you, have you heard of this? And then what you end up doing is instead of just having um, you know, one vote, one person, you end up having kind of more of a spectrum of votes, but you can see overall who is more liked and for what reasons. Yeah, it's a good idea to do that. Um, sometimes I think it's called Condorcet voting. And mm-hmm. One reason to do that is because uh, it allows you to vote your conscience and say, say, say you, su- you support Gary Johnson over the other candidates, but you think, I don't want to give, give him my vote because he's no right. chance of winning. You can put that first, and everyone can kind of put their first preference, but then your vote doesn't get canceled out. So I think all things equal, that's a better system, um, but it, it, it's a good way of dealing with the problem of third parties, and it, it, would, it would 
break the gridlock of the Republican and Democratic parties. Hmm. It, would, it would allow for other parties to flourish and other ideas to flourish. But I guess it wouldn't That's, inform us all. No, it wouldn't, it wouldn't change that. It wouldn't change whether uh, voters would be more informed or less informed. And actually, to my surprise, like some people who are ardent d- Democrats oppose that kind of voting system because they think it's too complicated and they think people will stay home in, rather than participate in it. Mm-hmm. It's um, one of the things about the epistocracy proposal is you would have a test to take and it would be, I guess, much like the naturalization, the citizenship test that that people have to take to get into the country. And ironically, they're, they're, they may be much more informed than than our own you know, political candidates. Oh, that's right. And, uh, you know, two thirds of Americans can't pass the citizenship exam. Oh, I'm sure. Right now they would fail it pretty miserably. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, that's a whole other problem. It sounds like. Talk about your uh, you've you've broken Americans into these these types: uh, hobbits, hooligans, and Vulcans. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So if you've seen the Lord of the Rings movies or read the books, you know that hobbits are they don't care much about the outside world. They don't want to go on adventures. They just want to live their normal day to day lives and eat their breakfast and their second breakfast and their elevensies and so on. <laughs> and the a uh, political analog of that would be uh, a person who doesn't care much about politics, doesn't really have strong or fixed opinions, doesn't have very much information, and just kind of wants to live his or her life. And that would be really roughly about half of Americans. The uh, typical non-voter behaves like that. And I don't really have any problem with that. I don't think voting is the be-all, end-all of citizenship. Um, so if you're just not participating, I don't, I don't have a complaint about that. Then... If you've ever been to, say, a, a soccer match yeah. in Europe or South America, you might have encountered hooligans, where hooligans are high information. They know a lot about about what they're talking about. They know a lot of sports stats, but they're really antagonistic towards the other side. They're incredibly biased. They only look for information that confirms that their team is the good team and they ignore information that says their team is, is not doing well. So the political analog would be... Uh, Someone who has a strong opinion, has more information, um, but sees being a Republican or Democrat as part of their identity in the same way that you might see a religious affiliation as part of your identity. And unfortunately, when it comes to politics, though, people tend to view it as, well, I'm a Democrat, so therefore Republicans are dumb and evil, or I'm a Republican and vice versa. And that's really the other half of Americans, roughly. Uh, <laughs> and then the finally, um, so the typical voter or politician would be a hooligan, so described. And then finally... A Vulcan is sort of an ideal type of this dispassionate person who isn't loyal to his or her beliefs, but is willing to give up their beliefs when the evidence comes in. And when many philosophers and political scientists and others talk about how democracy is supposed to work, what they have in mind is how Vulcans would make it work. Hmm. But we don't really have any Vulcans. We just have hobbits and hooligans. It's kind of the scientific model, though, right, where they're objective, they're, they're unemotional about it. It's just an intellectual choice. Absolutely, yeah. And that's what dispassionate scientist is, is. That idea of a dispassionate scientist is what people have in mind when they think about politics. Which, interestingly, is your goal to desacralize politics. And yet at the same time, I can hear just, I don't know, family, relatives, neighbors saying, just thinking you are the spawn of darkness. Because here you're trying to take something as sacred as a democracy and turn it into um, an epistocracy where it's just kind of an objective you know, thoughtful, I guess, uh, science. I don't know. It, it, I'm sure you run into that. The the people that still hold it so sacred, but yet at the same time, don't even study it, don't know, don't read deeply about it. Yeah, it's very strange. Uh, most Americans think, say, the Constitution has this kind of sacred and divine status. Right. And, and maybe it does. Yeah. But the, but the problem is, 
they don't know what's on it. So if you ask them, say, uh, name two rights that are protected by the First Amendment, only about a third of Americans can do that, even if you give them a multiple choice exam. Huh. Um, roughly about a third of Americans think that uh, Karl Marx's slogan, from each according to his abilities to each according to his needs, right. is, on, is in the Constitution. <laughs> so they, they believe it's sacred. I, you know, I, another example would be I, I had a, a friend when I lived in Tucson, Arizona, who was a Protestant evangelical, and she thought the Bible was sacred, but she'd like never read it. Never read it. <laughs> she, she didn't know right. what was in it. That's right. kind of what's going on here. And you can't. That's the deal, I guess. Is you can't create. I guess you people do. They they claim it's sacredness, and yet know nothing about it. Really, study it. Don't study it deeply. I mean, they, and even they can feel it spiritually. They can feel it's a special document that's created a great and amazing country, and yet they haven't read the First Amendment. That's right. Huh? Is this something that is fixed through education? Is is are we are we you know hurting our children by not by not pushing this kind of knowledge knowledge approach to politics? Yeah, people always ask, can the schools fix this problem? And I end up having to say, don't don't blame the schools. Uh, though when I say why not, it ends up being sort of depressing for mm. for thinking about schools. Unfortunately, uh, people forget almost everything they learn in school. Right. Um, I did. I just did this in class of a first year seminar. And I gave students a number of quiz, like a quiz of just things they covered in high school, and uh, they'd forgotten it all. They didn't. No one could really pass the quiz um, mm. because. So even if we expose people to the information they need, it's not likely to stay in their brains unless they find it useful or they find it interesting. So people who find politics interesting, they end up retaining a lot of inter- information about politics, though usually in a biased way. And the other half of Americans, they just forget it because it's not useful to them. And since your vote. The probability that your vote will be decisive is roughly on par with the probability that, you're, that you'll win Powerball a couple times. <laughs> so for that reason, uh, people don't acquire and retain information. And if they do have some information, they don't have any incentive to use it responsibly. True. Do, do you sense, um, just as a Georgetown professor, that are we really free as Americans? Well, uh, it, it depends what you want to – I mean, in an absolute sense, we could do a lot better. Um, we are constrained by all sorts of regulations. There are all sorts of controls in our life. Even starting a business, say, in D.C., if you want to do a hair braiding business, that requires you to go to spend more time in school to learn how to do hair braiding than you have to spend in school to become a police officer. Huh. And so a voter. And, and a voter, of course. So there's all sorts of ways in which we're constrained. Um, if you look at it historically or compared to other countries – Overall, we do quite well. Uh, I mean, but I don't think voting itself is a really crucial kind of freedom. I think it's important that we give each individual a large sphere of individual liberty to choose for themselves. But when we're voting, we're voting as a collective, and your input doesn't make a big difference. Uh, mm. I think I tend to think of political power as being quite different from civil or economic freedom, which I think is is much more important. If we went the way of of an epistocracy. Wouldn't um, certain ideas like religion be less protected? I don't think so, actually. And, and the reason for that is, uh, so I, I mentioned before this idea that you can collect information about what people want, who they are, and what they know. Mm-hmm. And, when you use, and when you get that information, you can then statistically determine how, what would happen if people were better informed while controlling for the effect of their race and their income on politics. And there are clear trends that emerge from that. Uh, there are certain policies that get favored and certain policies that tend to drop out. But there doesn't appear to be any antagonism towards religion. And in fact, I mean, 
I know, you know, where I'm from, like a lot of times religious people get attacked, but actually religious people do quite well. They tend to be informed, more informed than non-religious people, all things considered. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't think there's any inherent antagonism to religion in epistocracy. It, it seems like, uh, it, like if we just hear about Donald Trump's, you know, banning of Muslims, it seems like it would be the, the, the more informed people that would stand up for the Muslim faith and the need to just not use that as a litmus test. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so antagonism towards Muslims is strongly is negatively correlated with knowledge, and that's regardless of what your background religion is. Hmm. Um, and it's true. Donald Trump originally was supported by low information voters, and now that he is the Republican candidate, more people have come on board because people play teams and say, so, "Well, my team picked him. I have to go along with him." Uh, but yeah, it, it's his positions are the things that low information voters tend to support. I guess, so it's not to say that Hillary Clinton is is much better, right? But. but but Trump in particular appeals to low information. <laughs> I guess that's it. Is it's kind of an uninformed protectionist view versus an informed protect. Well, protectionist probably isn't the word, but an informed protector versus an uninformed protector. So let's say we can't get the the country to go epistocracy. Let's say yes. what what would you do to just improve democracy? A few things. One is I I would if I could wave a magic wand and get people to stop thinking of voting as magic. And instead of them saying, it doesn't matter if you're uninformed, just make sure you vote. If I could get people to say, if you, don't, if you know what you're talking about, please vote. But if you're uninformed, don't vote. Walk away. Change that. <laughs> you know, one, of the, one of the most civically virtuous things you can do is admit you don't know what you're doing and then put down the reins of power. Hmm. I'd like to do that. Uh, if I could change education a little bit, I would have people take economics and statistics multiple times through, from K-12 through education. They'll forget most of it, but they'll remember a little bit, and that will make us slightly better as voters. And finally, here's a proposal that's, that's legal and we could do. What if instead of uh, you take a test in order to get the right to vote, uh, right before the election, you take a test of very basic political knowledge, and if you pass that, you get a, say, a tax credit from the government. Mm. So the government basically pays you to be informed. And the, the questions could just be simple things, such as you know, who, which party controls Congress? What's the unemployment rate doing? Can you estimate it within five percentage points? Can you I love estimate that. within one percentage point what, yeah. uh, how much money is spent on foreign aid? Because knowing that stuff by itself dramatically changes how people vote. See, you're not like Lord Vader. Come um, on, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> that's, yeah. that's great insight. And I love that you're – I mean if we're going to call it sacred, then own it, right? Exactly. Read it. Learn about it. Study it. Good stuff. Well, great uh, discussion, Jason. Thank you so much for your insight, and best of luck with the book Against Democracy. Thanks very much for having me. You bet. Honestly, folks, this is this is important. you got to be informed. And what about the idea that if you're not going to be informed, don't vote. Don't vote. Just don't do it for the rest of us. Don't do it. Well, yeah, but a vote, a no vote is a vote for Hillary. Okay. Still... Get informed then. Doesn't mean you have to be a PhD. Just go get informed. And what about a test for tax breaks? Holy Hannah, that'd be great. We'll take a break. More interesting fun and insight up here on the Matt Townsend Show in just a few minutes. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. An epistocracy where you got to pass a test in order to get uh, to be able to vote. It seems a little far-fetched, right? 
But it does solve a problem of being informed. I don't know. I don't like it. It scares me a little bit because I don't want everybody to turn into – I don't want our elections just to look like a Harvard-MIT project. Right. I mean I kind of like having there, everyone go to I- Iowa and have to eat something on a stick. There's some constitutional restraints to yeah. tests for things. Right. <laughs> that, that are, you know, you're a citizen, you have a right, now we're going to install a test. He, he's giving us a academic exercise on how to fix something. And there's going to be some some hiccups along the way in his in, in the thought process, but it does bring yeah. up are we actually preparing to vote or do we just walk in there and go, "Hey, I've heard this person's name before" and punch well, it. And how many times have I heard some well, a vote for Johnson's a vote for Clinton? Yeah. Which isn't probably the case, quite honestly. It's kind of a vote against Clinton. I think if you don't vote for the two top parties, I think it's a vote against them. And I guess that's the dilemma is we're still not informed. We just no. keep we, – we spew all this stuff without being an informed electorate. But tonight, uh, the big debates and the ratings are going out of the roof, they're saying. The, the speculation is that uh, they're saying 100 million people are going to watch. 100 million. Which is crazy. If you think I've, of that many people in this country on the same thought – in the same wavelength, that's, that doesn't work. That's you know, crazy. We don't agree on everything. But uh, the most viewed debate in American history, according to Nielsen ratings, was the sole, the only Ronald Reagan, Jimmy Carter debate in 1980. It was right. right before the election. Almost 81 million people tuned in. Yeah. We got to keep in mind at that time it was on ABC, NBC, and CBS. That was it. Three stations. Nobody else had it. MTV didn't carry it. MTV wasn't rocking the vote. <laughs> didn't happen. Now they're saying 100 million tonight, um, and that could very well happen. Simply because the numbers are showing three and four Americans, so about 70% or so, 75%, are saying that they're going to watch. So if those numbers hold up, yeah, it'll be huge. The numbers will be outrageous. That's great. The top 20 shows of all time, I looked it up, Mm -hmm. 18 of them are Super Bowls. How many would watch a Super Bowl? Uh, The last, uh, the highest rated Super Bowl was in 2015, Super Bowl 49, Patriots and Seahawks. Right. That was 115 million people. Oh, could we beat the Super Bowl numbers? I don't think so. But you could get top 20. That's cool. Top 20. And, and that is. It's something worthwhile. Of of the top 20, MASH is a number eight with 105 million, the finale. I remember that. And the Cheers finale was oh, a yeah. 20 with 84 million. I think they're all just hoping that Hillary will collapse and Donald will have to do CPR. Could happen. Now, the other side of it is we don't know because it's going to be streaming. It's going to be on right, Facebook and Twitter. Those things aren't metered, so mm. we won't really know what the mm. audience is. Well, for someone this. will put it together. That's and if you do remember, country. Trump was complaining about putting this on the night yeah. against Sunday night and Monday night football. There's Good. a couple of debates, and this won't be a problem for them. I think no. people are very interested, and uh, it'll people, blow Monday Night Football out of the water. People want to see it. Okay, hour number one, folks. There's your debate coverage. We'll be back next hour. More fun. Stick with us. Let's see. Should I choose this one or this one? What you doing there? Ah! I'm just picking out a fall pumpkin. Hey, where did you come I was from? hiding in the bushes. Hey, now wait a minute. Is that the pumpkin you're going with? Well, yeah. Haven't you heard? Farmer Pete says he's got the biggest pumpkins in the state. <laughs> that crazy coot is still alive, huh? Well, come with me, Timmy. Now here's a pumpkin. Wow! Isn't she a beaut? 
Say, where are we anyway? Why, we're at the State Fair. State Fairs are home to the biggest pumpkins in the world. Want to take a guess at just how big? Uh, 25 pounds? Nope. Guess again. 26 pounds. Little higher. 27 pounds. <laughs> Not even close. Here at the State Fair, they've got pumpkins that grow up to 1,287 pounds. Whoa! Whoa! Oh, 1,287 pounds? That's the biggest pumpkin in the world! Not anymore. Now the State Fair's got a pumpkin that's 1,469 pounds. Whoa! 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 Oh, I'm convinced. State fairs are the place to be for the biggest pumpkins. Hey, mister, where'd you go? Mister, I need a ride home. Mister! This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Happy Lumberjack Day. Will you tell me something, Mr. Lumberjack? Is it one for forward and three for back? Is it two for Johnny Cash for you? Four for go. Boy, ask a whistle punk. I don't know. Mm. Johnny Cash. What a great voice. Uh, happy Lumberjack Day. Uh, Monty Python famously sang the Lumberjack song, and a rendition of this would be appropriate for today. So as you're walking down the uh, street, you can sing Johnny Cash's Lumberjack song or, of course, Monty Python's. We'll play that one again later. Yeah, we played it last hour. Just got my toe a-tapping. Nothing, makes, nothing says home more than the Lumberjack plaid, kind of the brawny man outfit. It's also... It's Batman Day. This is the Arkham Origins. What is it? I can't see that part. Rock Opera. It's a Batman musical. One of my favorite musicals. Batman. Who's your favorite Batman, by the way? Um, Adam West? I think it is, actually, because that used to make my day when that show was on. And it was obviously replays back then even. And But I thought he was the coolest man on earth, and his car rocked my world. Some days you just can't get rid of a bomb. You can't. That's one of his famous catchphrases. What are you supposed to do with sometimes? You just don't have a place to put it. You hand it to little Robin and have him run it out to the curb. Interesting Batman day today, folks. Pick your favorite and um, got a lot to talk about. Holy cow, including world record uh, broken with the uh, with a pumpkin. We'll talk about that coming up as well. It's state fair times. A lot of you are going to your state fair and this is where you've got everything, every kind of meat on a stick you can imagine. It's where you get to see the other side of society. Have you ever had fried butter? Uh, no, pretty much everything I fry is in butter. Fried Oreos. Ooh, deep fried Oreos. That sounds really yummy. It sounds good for you, too. Mm. I am hungry this morning. But we can't. We're not going to ask. We're not asking Sadie to go get cronuts. She did that last week. We've, uh, we've, we'll, we'll be getting to the, um, 
the story about the pumpkin, as well as holy cow, sad day. If you if you're if you love golfing, Arnold Palmer passed away this weekend. At the age of 87, he was awaiting cardiac surgery in Pittsburgh, and uh, according to a statement from his company, passed away. Anyway, he won more than 90 golf tournaments, including the Masters four times, the U.S. Open in 1960, the British Open in 61 and 62. I remember watching him golf with my grandfather, just loving it. It was a cool moment. So uh, sad passing for all of us. Um, I'm sure we'll hear more about that in the news and the headlines. So let's get to news and headlines with who who better than Sadie Nielsen to walk us through what's going on around the rest of the country. Sadie? Democrat Hillary Clinton and Republican Donald Trump are separated by less than the 4.5% margin of error in a Washington Post-ABC News poll released Sunday morning. Clinton has maintained a substantial lead over Trump for most of the campaign, but the gap has increasingly narrowed as the election day approaches, and this survey sees that trend continue. Among likely voters, Clinton scores 46% to Trump's 44%, while Libertarian Party nominee Gary Johnson takes 5%, and the Green Party's Jill Stein has 1% national support. If Johnson and Stein are removed as options, Clinton leads Trump 49 to 47%. Federal agencies on Friday started to prepare for a possible government shutdown beginning October 1st, the end of the fiscal year. Though congressional leaders are working on a 10-week stopgap measure to continue funding the federal government, squabbles over whether that bill should include relief aid to Flint, Michigan, have stalled the process. The last time the government shut down because of a funding gap was in 2013, when non-essential employees were sent home for more than two weeks. The midnight curfew put in place Thursday in Charlotte, North Carolina, following protests over the fatal officer-involved shooting of Keith Lamont Scott, was lifted Sunday by Mayor Jennifer Roberts. In a statement, the mayor said city leaders wanted the community to show their unity in a peaceful and legal manner. And finally... Yes? Do you love Target, Matt? I can't get enough of it. You mean Target? Yeah, Target. Yeah. I love Target, too. Well, apparently it's ending its trial run of kid-sized mini carts at stores in Minnesota and New York after shoppers complained of bruised ankles. <laughs> um, they released it in 50 Minnesota stores, 22 New York stores a few weeks ago, but they received a flood of negative, negative feedback from shoppers. They complained that children without experience with proper sh- shopping cart protocol would crash into adults, other carts, and store displays, mm. leading to minor injuries and major messes. Ugh. In fact, a blogger even started a movement called Moms Against Stupid Tiny Carts, <laughs> otherwise known as the hashtag Mastic. Wow. So this is really a thing that's just not going to go through. So I apologize, but your grandchildren Uh, will probably never get a chance to drive a mini cart at Target. That's why you just put them in the little truck ones at They need to get rid of those two. And then then they drive. (laughs) Those don't fit in the aisles. They don't fit in the register. All the people that work there hate them. That's true. (laughs) You know what? This This is why we have our guest today talking about why parents are getting angrier. It's because... We our kids keep knocking our ankles. My kid sits in the car cart at the grocery store, honks the horn, and yells at people to get out of the way. Well, I wonder where he learned to and drive. And then his like mom that. goes, "Where did you? Where did you? Why are you doing that?" He goes, "It's just how dad drives." And then I'm the guy. I'm the bad guy all of a sudden. <sighs> I was. I mean, I didn't even want him to get the car cart to begin with. It brings out the worst elements of him. It's like he's driving. Man, man, man! I buy all my tools from Target. I even buy the bandages for my ankles, my leg brace. Uh, a little shout out to um, your wife, Terry. She still hasn't delivered the baby. Yeah, she is still with 
child. Child. It's now we, like nine months and two days. We have a clock just ticking the hours that we were thinking we would be without you. Yeah. And I can tell you're frustrated. I spent most of the day yesterday going, so uh, you having a baby yet? No. You having a baby yet? How about now? No. How, How about, about now? now? No. Yeah, that's great. Like, knock it off. Okay. She's she's going to – I don't know if she's going to want to have it because that means you two will have a lot of time she's to really, just talk. She's really kind of frustrated at the whole uh, millennial effect of the birthing process now. Really? Why? You walk in and sit down and the people are like, we're here to help you with your journey. It's your birth experience. We want to be. You mean squeezing this baby out of my body? And my wife's like, just get this done. Why are we turning into this? Like, you know, it's like a a spa treatment, and they want to have music playing. And she goes, millennials are ruining everything. Turn that clock off. (laughs) The uh, it's true. It's interesting. So it's like you've got to let your listen to your body. Yeah. You're in control. We're here to assist you. Like, no, you're the medical individual that knows what's happening. Do this. You know. See, too, they're going to go slow and steady, and they're going to wait till that baby wants to come out. Yeah. Even though, is it two days overdue now? Yeah. Okay. She went nine days with the first kid. Oh, wow. So she this... ran a mile the day before she gave birth, and she was nine days overdue. So Has she decided days... to run? No. Not yet. She's she, not she hasn't run for a couple months now. Okay. So maybe it's time to go for a little run. She does other things. I don't know if she can Castor run. oil. It's a waddle. We understand. A waddle. That's the other thing. Everyone has a tip. Everyone else has, this will work. A neighbor came over with spicy salsa. Here, try this. Try this. Yeah. Boy. And here you sit, but you you can get a phone call and you're gone. Yeah, and I'll be out of here. You'll be out of here. Yeah. And then you got a half hour drive or more? Actually, it's more like an hour. She's she's actually right next to the hospital. Oh, yeah. She'll be fine. Yeah. She works next to the Maybe hospital. Maybe she could just so FaceTime you. Walk over. Yeah. Here, you can watch as you drive. Like, don't do that. Oh, that's darn scary. Hey, uh, boy, where do you begin? Of course, the baby update. We'll keep everybody posted on that. Um, How about this one? A dog swam more than six miles and walked a dozen more to find his family after falling overboard in Lake Michigan. Wow. (laughs) I would walk 500 miles. If... Did he have a GoPro on him? Apparently. But did they not know he fell over? Let me tell you. Edward Cassis was boating on a lake uh, Michigan Sunday with his wife, Kristen, and the family dog, a 10-month-old puppy named Riley. Cassis said Riley went overboard while he was in the engine room trying to figure out a mechanical problem with the boat, and his wife was steering. Cassis said he sent out a mayday call on the radio and was connected to a volunteer group that searches for dogs. The next morning, someone spotted Riley going to a nearby campground. Edward Cassis says there was a lot of sobbing and hugging when the family was reunited. Of the wet dog. Yeah. You. That smelly wet dog smell. How cute, though. Yeah. You fall overboard. I I think more so there's an organization set up for this situation. Dog so how often does this happen? It must happen a lot in Lake Michigan. They've got big enough boats that you're down in the engine room. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And then the dog swam six miles, walks 12 more, and finds the family. Hmm. I'm pretty sure we drop a human. Yeah. A human puppy. <laughs> that baby's not getting home. No. No. I think we have... Um... 
a video of them being reunited. Oh, do we really? Excellent. <laughs> oh, okay. Just let it out. Have a good time. Oh, oh okay. That's there was a lot of crying. Wow, there. That, was, that was that was emotional. That is. I'm glad we had that video. Reminded me of like one of my favorite movies, hmm. Dumb and Dumber. Hmm. I don't know. Just saying. Do you have any uh, news we have to get to, Terry? I like to update you on new snack foods. Yes, I like that. Terry. You, you uh, want to try as many as possible. Oh yeah. Um, are you a fan of Doritos? Love them. Like the Doritos, they have a new flavor. What? Black garlic pepper Halloween Doritos. Black, Black garlic, garlic pepper. pepper. Somebody's going to need a breath mint. So the chips are jet black. Uh huh. And then garlic pepper. I like pepper and I like garlic. I don't, I've never had them together. I don't. They're, they're themed for Halloween specifically. The okay. bag is spooky yeah, dark and, and scary. I think it's sort of glow. Can you get them at Target? Um, that's the problem is they're only in Japan. Oh, jeez. You're teasing us. Yeah. It is interesting. There is a quote from Dracula on the bag. What is it? It says, I can't eat garlic, but I want to eat these. <laughs> so why would they tease this in Japan only? Well, it's it's this blog. There's blogs that follow snack food all over the globe. Yeah. And Doritos tests things in other markets. And, like, we don't have ketchup chips. If you've ever had those from Canada, they're really good. Are they? Yeah. Really? Ketchup chips. Um, Ketchup's good on everything. There's just different flavors for different areas of the world, and they have the black Well, now I want some, and I'm mad because apparently can't get them unless I have them shipped from Japan. So it says, if you're a fan of garlic, you're going to love these. You're a fan of pepper, you're You're going to love these. these. If you're a fan of eating things that are just jet black in color. Are they black? Yeah, black chips because it's Halloween. Well, I know, but that's just gross. <laughs> Toasty. Um, this is the uh, flavor just bursts off these chips without being too overpowering. They're just as crunchy as standard Doritos. There's nothing like them, and I mean that in the best possible way. Are they black dyed or are they black potatoes? Is there Wasn't there a black it, plague it, that <laughs> was because of a lack of potatoes? Sometimes they do like a black bean type chip. These are tortilla mm. chips, so it looks like it's some sort of food coloration going yeah. on. Oh, maybe it's that dark. Yeah. Yeah. Because they have those dark chips. Right. Oh, right. yeah. There's, oh, yeah. There's, there's blue tortilla chips. You can find those. Those are pretty good. So you just get a deeper blue and you got yourself a black. So it's uh, garlic, mm. pepper, mm. chips, but they're jet black. <sighs> but you can't get them because they're only in Japan. So it's kind of yeah. it's kind of pointless to talk Sounds about, good. but still kind of fun. You know what you could do is just go to the state fair. Uh, a lot of fairs going on right now. And in Alaska, they broke a world record, apparently. Um, a giant pumpkin record. Mm. Anchorage's Del Marshall uh, finally won the heavyweight title again. At the 11th annual state fair, pumpkin way off Tuesday. Marshall's pumpkin weighed in at 1,000 469 pounds. That's a big gourd. That is a mother gourd. Beat the previous record of 1,287 pounds. Schooled that record. Wow. It was a comeback of all sorts for Marshall, who held the record in 2010. Marshall said warm weather, good seed selection led him to the victory. 
Grown in a greenhouse in his Sand Lake home, uh-huh. the champion pumpkin weighs roughly as much as a large bull moose. Nice. By the way, that's a measurement comparison only found in Alaska. In Alaska. Some would say as, as much as a small car, as much as a Harley. Anyway, uh, go go to the fair, folks. The Matt Townsend Show, we want to suggest everyone, get out there, get to the fair, and just realize how lucky you are to be you. We'll take a break, come back, and when we come back, we'll be talking about why parents are getting angrier right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. There are thousands of reasons to get angry, right? Traffic, that irksome coworker, your broken appliances, or your child's disrespect. How do you take a step back and avoid having that negative energy influence you? Here to discuss is the founder and director of the British Association of Anger Management, Mr. Mike Fisher, and he's here to tell us why parents are getting angrier and what to do about it. Mike, thank you so much for being with us. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show. What a what an interesting job you've got. Um, you're the founder of the British Association of Anger Management, and you've been doing this for over 30 years. Uh, 20,000 people you've helped manage their emotion. Do, do you sense in all of your experience that we are getting more angry as parents? Well, I can, I can really only base it on our statistics based on the amount of people that email us and people who inquire over the phone and, of course, just what I experience is the general mood in the U.K. So, yes, pe- uh, people-parents are certainly getting more angry than usual. What do you attribute it to? Why, what, what is the cause of, of the uh, increasing parental anger? It's, it seems like anger and frustration with parenting has been there a long time, but are, are there other conditions today that might be affecting yeah, it? Absolutely. So... Um, I, I would say just from my own direct experience of working with children who um, are in EBD schools in the UK, emotional behavioral schools, mm-hmm. um, emotional, what's it, EBD, emotional behavioral development schools. One of the big issues that we found there is a lot of these young people spend copious amounts online, either playing computer games or just hanging out online on an ongoing basis, anything between, you know, six hours a day and 10 hours a day, and on school holidays, probably about 18 hours a day. So I think that's probably one of the major concerns for parents. What, and what I mean by that, of course, is that trying to get the kids to do things and cooperate is virtually impossible because they become addicted to the Internet. I, I joke about this when I say, um, my, the internet has stolen my child, hmm. but I think there's a huge amount of truth in that, and I think bulk of our concerns and big, uh, big issues for parents is just that. And if I can just say one more thing about yeah. that, is, is that one of the things that we do say when angry parents and distraught parents give us a call, I say to them, how much time does your child or your teenager spend online a day and then of course they say you've got to be joking not only day night and virtually every possible awakening hour they want to spend online Hmm. so that kind of raises the question about you know one why anger is on the increase and secondly why young people are so addicted 
to virtual reality. It's, um, I guess it's one thing to feel angry, that emotion, that, that you know, chemical firing in your brain that you, you want to go off. It's another thing when we do go off, right? Because increased anger issues would, I'm assuming, drive physical violence uh, up. Well, not, not, I, I agree with you, but not only physical violence, but the angrier that I get with my kid, the more they're going to withdraw. It's not right. the other way around. There's an assumption, you know, that the angrier that we get, we think we're going to get a positive result, but that's not the way you get a positive result. And of course, that eventually could lead to physical violence. And, you know, we also have to be clear that physical violence could mean giving, you a, giving a child a spanking. Mm-hmm. And often I hear parents talk about, you know, well, I just gave him a little spank like I got on the bottom when I was a kid. Well, in this country, that's not cool at all. It's illegal. You can't do that. Yeah. And so I do think there is something to be said about, you know, at what point does it actually become physical violence and what point is it exact exactly disciplining, disciplining your child. However, my major concern is, is that screaming and shouting at your kid, teenager, doesn't work. And parents know that, especially the parents who eventually come to our anger management programs. And they, yeah, the minute we're starting to shout, scream, intimidate, you're, you're probably going to just shut the child down, right? They're, they're going to pull away from you, yep. which is the exact opposite of what your goal is. Exactly. And, and of course, I mean, the other issue there is that, you know, give me a moment. <clears throat> historically, I used to think or believe that the reason why kids become uncooperative is because actually, you know, any attention, whether it's positive or t- negative attention, is attention. But actually, I've changed my view on that. What children, what teenagers need is connection, contact, relationship. Mm. And because their parents are so much busier and so much more stressed, they're not getting the kind of contact that they want. So where are they going? They're hanging out online. Right. And then, and then when they do get contact and connection, uh, it's it, a lot of times it's just angry, frustrated. How much exactly. of our, our anger as parents is simply because we know we're not doing a good job? Well, look, in the programs that we deliver on, uh, one of the programs we deliver on is called Understanding Anger for Parents. So one of the things that we say is, you know, who makes you angry as a parent? And, you know, people say the children or the traffic or whatever. Um, And we say, no, you make you angry. You have a choice whether you're going to be angry or not. Hmm. But essentially what makes a parent angry is not their children because they feel emotionally inadequate to get the kind of cooperation they actually need to get a child to do whatever tasks they need to do. Get up in the morning, brush their teeth, put their clothes on, get to school on time. So they feel profoundly inadequate, inadequate, and then what they do is they then project that onto the kids. Right. And the other problem, of course, as you can imagine from my perspective, is it's not about being angry with the kid. It's about being angry with the behavior of the child. Mm-hmm. And I keep forgetting that there's a distinction between the two. And it seems like we've uh, these kids are getting more complicated in a way and emotionally. And we, we, I guess, are more and more under-tooled, which is all the more reason we need a program to help us with this anger management. Absolutely, but let me let me tell you something really interesting is that when we have tried to promote anger management for parents, we've not got the kind of response that we've needed. Uh, the bulk of the programs that we've delivered on in the UK has been through a visionary, um, what do we call them? We call them a commissioner through Ealing Council, which is one of the boroughs in the UK and one of the boroughs in London. 
and she had the vision about 13 years ago to employ me to come in and do these anger management programs. And I was doing until recently four of these programs a year, and they were chock-a-block. We couldn't take more than 22 people mm-hmm. per program. And I've been doing that for the last 13 years. I mean, it's only recently wow. where they've run out of funding. But to get people to admit, sorry, let me take it back, to get parents to admit that they have anger management issues, they judge themselves for being failures. Mm. And of course, being, the, being a, a, a parent is one of the most difficult tasks on the planet. I mean, that's just a given as far as I'm concerned. Right. Well, and I guess that's it. So you changed the name of it. What was it? Understanding? Yeah, we used to call it Anger Management for Parents, and then we changed the name to Understanding Anger Management for Mm. Parents. (laughs) So then parents would come in, of course, Yeah. and, um, you know, they they feel a little less guilty or ashamed. But, you know, while they're there, they recognize that actually they're as angry as their children or their child. However... What we always say, and for your listeners, this is an important key, the child, the teenagers, the young adult will always, always act out the unconscious of the parents. Hmm. So when parents call us, we first try and identify their anger issues and whether they're angry or not. And so that is a kind of a key component to the whole issue. And as soon as we realize that there's a, there's a problem with the actual parents themselves, that is where our focus is. So give me we an example of that. So if, if I'm stressed as a parent about finances, about the economy, um, and, I, you know, and it, it has me working longer hours, it has me doing all of these no. things, is that – you're saying my child is very likely to act out that financial emotional stress. So what, I'm, what I'm suggesting – is that when I start to get into an argument and a fight with you as my partner, as my wife, my husband, and the kids observe that, that creates a huge amount of distress in them. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, they will act that out unconsciously, and we will act that out unconsciously. Yeah. In fact, sorry, let me take that back. We'll act it out unconsciously with each other. They will act it out consciously, uh-huh. which increases my stress level your stress level, and of course their stress levels, and stress fuels anger. So in, the, in, the, in our inability to understand and manage our emotions better, we are creating an emotional chaotic environment, emotionally chaotic environment. There is that, but I just want to, yes, I agree, and there is that, but just let's go back a step. So what happens is we get parents calling us and saying, I have a child who has a problem with anger. I know the problem is with the child. I know the problem is with the parents. Right. So they don't call up and say, actually, I have an anger management problem, and it's affecting and impacting my kid. There's shame associated with that. How am I going to own up to that? So let's make it about the kid. So the way that we operate, certainly now my one-to-one work, is, is I say, well, first of all, we start with you and your husband or you and your wife. Let's kind of get a sense of what's going on for you. I do six sessions with them. I literally get them on the same page as me. And actually what paradoxically happens is their relationship starts to stabilize. Guess what happens with the kids? Bingo. Healed. Their relationships start to stabilize. Yeah. It's so interesting. From six, it's very interesting, isn't it? So I go from sometimes six sessions, sometimes 12 sessions, sometimes 18 sessions. And actually I don't even need to see the kids. Yeah, isn't that, isn't that great? And uh, I mean, again, really heal thyself, right? Uh, as they start to get better 
emotional understanding and management of their own emotion, they probably communicate better. They can solve problems better. They can get on the same page together. And then the child just heals by watching healthy behavior. Yeah, it's pure, it is simply energetic. And, and I think there's another component to it is because when the child sees stability in the family system, they're less stressed. And when they're less stressed, there's more contact. And with more contact, they're more emotionally stable. Hmm. Now, I'm slightly exaggerating that, yeah, because, of course, you get kids that are angry, and it doesn't come from the family system. Right. It might come from bullying in school. It might come from uh, relatives. It might come from older siblings, younger siblings. We, we, I don't think it's, there's any hard and fast rule. So we actually also have to look at the not just the system within the family, but we've got to go out into the community. And then, of course, we also have to look at the junk that they eat. Oh, yeah. Food's a whole other story here. Let's continue the discussion after the break. We're speaking with Mike Fisher uh, at angermanage.co.uk, a great organization in the UK working with parents that are struggling with uh, anger management issues and how to um, how to to control your own emotion a little bit better. When we come back, we'll continue the discussion, hopefully give you more tools to manage the emotion. We'll be back. Friends, have your kids uh, been stressing you out? Are you wondered? Are you wondering why they? Oh, why are they just so bored with life? And why does that make you so angry that they're on their phone and then they don't do their homework and then ah, then you blow it? Joining us on the phone is Mike Fisher, and Mike for the last thirty years has been working with people on managing emotion, on human potential, on personal growth. He has a website, angermanage.co.uk, angermanage.co.uk. He's a wonderful resource in the UK to help parents understand their own emotional management. And uh, he joins us today to walk us through um, an article he wrote, Why Parents Are Getting Angrier. And Mike, we appreciate you being with us. It's a pleasure. Can I just say one thing? Please. For those American parents, I also do Skype workshops, or sorry, Skype um, assessment uh-huh. sessions internationally. So I do work across the planet. Great. So we can actually call you, have a, have a, a little, um, like a, a, a consultation with you and find out yeah. how to manage it. But you just brought up a great point that the first thing you try to do when you're working with this, even though the parents might present this as my kids have got issues – um, you usually have found it works better if we get the parents first to work on their own anger, I guess, as an individual and as a couple. Yes. I mean, keeping in mind, I mean, that's from just years and years of being in this business. I've been in the business for over 18 years now. And so we've kind of worked that we've worked out a formula. One is we need the parents on the same page as us. Right. Two, we need as much cooperation from the parents as we do from the children. And, of course, if I'm working with a child or a teenager without working with the parents, once I've done amazing work with a child or teenager, you know, they go home um, to, their, to their parental home, and then the parent says something which is completely inappropriate, and they just lash out. So parents also need to find a language, a way of communicating to kind of get um, the, the response as opposed to the reaction that they need. Mm. 
And you, I guess, I mean, you've written two books. Beating Anger was one of them in 05 yeah. and one in 2012, uh, Mindfulness and the Art of Managing Anger. I mean, we the anger is inside of us, right? And it, it comes from, I guess, some of it's conscious, some of it's, some of it's probably, I guess, uh, subconscious, conscious thoughts. Sure. And then, yeah. but so what are some of the tricks of the trade that you teach for us to get control of our emotion? So, so we, you know, one of the areas that we focus on in terms of, tri- I like the idea, tricks for tricks of the trade. Um, we, we talk about six rules of anger management. Some of those rules are directly related to parenting and parenting school skills, and other rules uh, are irrelevant. However, if you want me talk, to talk about that, that's something I'd, I'd like to talk about. Yeah, that, that'd be great. Okay. So, you know, from, from the top, I think one of the big issues with parents I hope the parents are listening to this, by the way. Mm-hmm. One of the big issues uh, with parents is they take things personally. Yeah. They take it very personally if their children do not cooperate or behave in the way that they want them to. And that's the worst thing that you can do because it's not personal. The, the, the thing about a child, if a child or teenager wants to cooperate, guess what? They'll do that. Right. But they also know their parents' hot buttons. They know exactly how to trigger their parents. And so, of course, when they realize that their parents are reacting in the way that they do, it gives them more power. It gives them more influence over their parents. So, firstly, it's about how not to take things personally. Now, of course, that's part and parcel of our programs. That's what we deliver. And it's not just a, you know, 30-second conversation with right. you. But that's one of, the, one of the, the rules that we work with. The second thing we look at is stop, think, take a look at the big picture. You know, a parent needs to be a hell of a lot more objective in the context of what is actually going on. And, and of course, that feeds into not taking things personally. However, we need to take into consideration that a child might be very stressed, a child might be very depressed, a child might be very overwhelmed, a child might be very confused. Now, a child might not have the language, the emotional intelligence, the EQ, versus the IQ to be able to communicate and express that. So as parents, we need to start to investigate that. We need to ask a lot more questions rather, about sh- rather than shaming and blaming. Right. And the, po- the reason why I shame and blame is because I'm taking the child's behavior personally. I'm making it about me, and it's got nothing to do with me. Mm-hmm. Am, yeah. I, am I making sense? Yeah, totally. And then they can't see the big picture, and then they just turn into a reactive ball. Of energy. Exactly. Yeah. And then it justifies, unfortunately, it justifies the child's behavior. Right, right. It, it reinforces the child's behavior. You don't, actually, that's a, that's a big one because one of the major issues that we have with parents, you know, the feedback we get from children and teenagers, my parents don't listen to me. Mm. And that's another one of the rules. Parents need to listen, not just hear, but listen. And I think there's a distinction between the two. And that's a skill I've noticed we just as adults we're not very good at. We don't we listen really more to respond than we do to understand. Yes, exactly. So parents so need to get better at listening. Absolutely. So we've got stop thing, take a look at the big picture. It's okay to have a, a don't take anything personally. Uh, listen. The other major uh, resource is using your support network. So, you know, it's fascinating with the parents that we work with. They live and they work in isolation. Most of them are stressed out and exhausted. And Mm. they don't really have the kinds of community that they need in order 
to get the necessary support so that they can take a break, they can take time out. And so there's something amazing when they're sitting in a group of, say, 22 people, and there's an amazing amount of wisdom there, and it's a resource yeah. in the community. And they start to realize that they can actually start using each other for support. So they connect, mm. and they develop these relationships to offer wisdom, uh, words of advice, um, maybe even become really good friends, whereby they can actually support um, families as and when they need it. So, you know, I, I might need to, I want to, myself and my wife might want to go out for the evening. I know I can possibly call somebody in my support network mm. to do a bit of babysitting. Yeah. Or, you know, get together as families and friends. No, I love that. We, in fact, um, I, I noticed my parents divorced when I was younger, but it was our support network. It was our church family, our our neighbors, friends that would that would kind of fill that void and and help yes. my single mom out. And yes. it was really ended up being those people, a lot of them, that influenced me so greatly. Yes, it's powerful. So, exactly, and so. Support is absolutely fundamental. And then the other rule that we, we, we introduce is um, parents using an anger management journal. So what, what, I, what I mean by that is that, you know, if you allow yourself to just to ruminate, whereby letting the anger go round and round and round in your head eventually drives you nuts. Right. I mean, there's an American saying, as you probably know, you know, don't let anger rent space in your head. <laughs> and so that's often what happens. So we, you know, we become consumed by negative thoughts as opposed to positive thoughts. And so by using an anger journal, it is just another very effective way of um, managing those emotions and those feelings by yeah. not ruminating, by not allowing them to rent space in your head. And then, of course, you know, while I'm looking at what a, uh, what a monster my kid is, maybe I can also take time to think about what are the positive aspects of them. Yeah. You know, where do they shine? Where are they cooperative? Where are they amazing and creative and loving and kind? But the problem is the point that I demonize my kids. I forget that my capacity to be empathetic and uh, compassionate, in fact, I become competitive, of course, yeah. to, to, be, to be empathy and compassionate kind of just diminishes and goes out the window and I demonize my kids. Hmm. In that moment, of course, yeah, in that moment. And you do this in six sessions um, and it pretty much gets the parents on the same page with you, and then I guess they can practice them over each week and and gain a deeper appreciation. I guess what you're really doing is almost turning the emotion off, right, by creating a better interpretation, a healthier interpretation, and giving them some yeah. skills, some tools to manage the emotion. Yeah, that's that's exactly what we're doing. It's very accurate, the description of it. And then do the then kids – do you teach the children the same thing? Okay, so – if we're doing our workshops with groups of people, you know, they're only there for a very intense day. Yeah. They do get support from the actual local council because they do have uh, caseworkers and key workers and social workers who then go on to help those parents integrate their learning. <clears throat> In the one-to-one -one work, you know, I probably do an average, um, let me just be very clear, so it's 6, 12, probably of average between 12 and 18 sessions. But by the time we get to the 12th session where I'm interviewing the kid or doing an assessment for the kid, the kid's in a very different space mm -hmm. simply because his parents are stabilized. So in recent years, I can tell you now, I hardly ever work with uh, teenagers and kids. Mm. I tend to just focus on the parents Yeah, and something stabilizes. However, I also suggest books that they can read. Yeah, so they can because continue their learning. 
Uh, yes, and, and they can go you know, deep what, as deep as they want to go. Absolutely, because you know sometimes what happens. I'm not a, a child behaviorist. A child behaviorist is the kind of bloke or woman that can help you to get your kids out of bed in the morning, get them dressed, get them to school. That's very much about child behavioral management. That's not my gig. I'm, I'm a therapist. I'm teaching people how to manage their anger. But the kind of questions they then ask me, you know, how do I get him to bathe? How do I get him off the computer? And there are people like Chespachu, um, who's, who's, I think, is a Swedish bloke who really, really knows his stuff. And there are people like Charles Taylor in the UK and Warwick Dyer in the UK. These guys will tell you how to get your kids to cooperate, not manage their anger. Get them to cooperate. Hmm. And so mm. I guess that when, we, when I think of all of this, man, there's so much that we need to learn as a parent. And I guess the first big learning is don't pass, it all, don't pass all your power off to your kid. Don't make Absolutely. them be the blame. Don't make them be the answer. Yes. I mean, really what, what I often say to parents is that, you know, every time you act out in anger, you give your power away. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's for, for us, we're not saying get rid of your anger. We're not saying deny your anger. We're saying find a way to communicate and language your thoughts and feelings. And so you start by expressing yourself by saying, I feel angry with you. Or I say, you know, I, very, I feel very sad and hurt, scared and angry because I'm actually struggling to get you to cooperate. And at this point... We need to find a new way of getting you to cooperate. So let's have the discussion. Let's explore this in, in more detail. So, that, you know, you begin a communication. Mm-hmm. And, they, and it also, what also happens in, in many cases, depending on the age, of course, is uh, it creates reciprocity. It becomes a dance between you and I. But kids want to be understood. They want to be valued. They want to be respected, just like parents do. Right, right. So, you know, often parents focus on the symptoms. They don't focus on the causes. And the causes primarily is that children, teenagers, want to be loved unconditionally. And if they don't get that, it's definitely uh, an obstacle that actually creates suffering and pain. Yeah. Well, I I couldn't agree more. And we got to get out of all that smoke and get down to the real fire, the real issue that – that yes. just desire to be connected to somebody. As we wrap it up, uh, Mike, what would you say? I always ask for the one thing. What's the one thing, and maybe you just answered it, that would that would immediately create the biggest impact in the parent-child relationship when it comes to emotion? God, there's not just one thing, but I, I think the closest I could get to that is that what I have to realize is that the reason I'm in I'm angry with the child is because I'm actually inadequate in being able to get them to cooperate. Mm. And it's not about an ab feeling. It's not about inadequacy. It's a really difficult job. And there's no need to be ashamed about it. But it's about getting educated. Love it. Love it. Mike Fisher, appreciate your great insight. Again, the, go, go look up the books Beating Anger and uh, Mindfulness and the Art of Managing Anger. You can also get more information on his website, angermanage.co.uk, and get information about how you can work with him over Skype. Interesting stuff, folks. It's about uh, our own insecurities, our own inadequacies, and let's just get more educated. We'll take a break. Come back. Continue the discussion. Leanna Tan, one of our producers, will be talking about tongue twisters and the English language. Stick with us. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his coaching corner. 
Welcome back. You know, um, emotion, it's telling you something. It's its communicating to you. So if you're angry, if you're frustrated, if you feel this shame that uh, Mike Fisher was talking about as a parent, we want to project it onto somebody else. We want to make it sound like and seem like our problem would be our children or, you know, our work environment or this crazy world. But in the end, your emotion is yours. It's coming from your thinking, your way of uh, approaching this issue. And you, you really can't argue with just getting more information, more learning, more skills to help you uh, with it. If you notice you have an anger management problem, there could be other things going on as well. You might be super reactive. You might also be one person that has a lot of um, a, a lot of sensitivity, which means you probably pick up a lot of data and you might get exhausted and frustrated more, which comes out with more angry, emotional outbursts. So watch out for that. In fact, a really uh, great search, go Google the Matt Townsend Show and Highly Sensitive Person. Those those two keywords, Matt Townsend Show and Highly Sensitive Person, you'll have a great interview that we did um, with Elaine Aaron uh, talking about uh, highly sensitive people. And a lot of the people that I think are blowing up are very sensitive, and they're the ones that tend to ruminate, and they just can't get their head out of that thought that I'm a bad parent, I'm a bad parent. My kid's sitting there. He's not doing his homework. I'm a bad parent. And we just keep spiraling. So just some simple tools for you, but I guess the number one, recognize your anger is about you, right? It's probably about your feeling uh, that you're not cutting it. You're not, you don't know how to deal with this situation as a parent. And so instead of blowing up, maybe uh, blow open a book and go read, go learn, go take a break. Now, back to uh, another point at hand. You know, one of the hardest things about learning a language can be the pronunciation of words. Even if you have spoken the language your entire life, it's easy to stumble over your own words, So you might think you've mastered the English language, but really there's so many tongue twisters you can't quite get right. Uh, Feel feel and fill are words I'm working on. Um, It it doesn't seem like it should be that hard, but man, some of the language just gets you. So joining us um, through a little five-minute story is going to be our producer, Leanna Tan, and she's going to show us a few tongue twisters that have her stumped. When I was little, I used to pride myself on being the fastest one at saying, Peter Piper picked a peck of pickled peppers. Okay, Eunice travel plans. I need to be in New York on Monday, LA on Tuesday, New York on Wednesday, LA on Thursday, New York on Friday. Got it. It was like people thought you were some kind of whiz kid for like two seconds. If you could master the tongue twister. It's been a while, but I wonder if I've still got it. I'm a little rusty at my tongue twister practicing, but I have had a lot of enunciation practice working at this radio. Good morning, Vietnam! So I started wondering, has all my radio voicing and enunciation practice paid off? There was really only one way to find out. So I have here a master of language. Connoisseur of linguistic talents. Yes, that's her title. (laughs) And this is my very own sister, Asia. So Asia is brilliant. She was valedictorian and beat me at a lot of things growing up. But we're going to see if if I can beat her at something today. So today we're going to have her do some tongue twisters. But she has one already memorized that I want her to debut. What is the tongue twister that you have memorized? It's from Fox and Socks by Dr. Seuss, and it's just a little part of that one. 
All right, let's hear it. When Tweedle Widow's battle is called a Tweedle Widow battle, and the battle in a puddle is a Tweedle Widow puddle battle, and Tweedle Widow's battle with paddles in a puddle like a this is a Tweedle Widow puddle paddle battle, and Widow's battle beetles in a puddle paddle battle, and the Beetle battle puddle is a puddle in a bottle like a this is a Tweedle Widow puddle puddle battle battle. When Beetle fights battles in a bottle with their paddles and bottles on Poodle and Poodle's eating noodles like a this is a Tweedle Poodle beetle noodle bottle paddle battle, and when a fox is in a bottle with a Tweedle Widow's battle with their paddles in a puddle and Poodle eating noodles like a this is a Tweedle Widow noodle puddle battle paddle battle little fettled little fox and soxer. We just got served, team. Holy cow, that was so amazing! Thanks, I'm glad I could impress you. All right, well, let's see if I can beat her. <laughs> All right, I have like three tongue twisters that are gonna stump you because I've already read these out loud and they're hard. <laughs> okay. So there's one part of English language that's that's kind of unique to other languages, and it's our R sound. It's very harsh than Arg. other other um, languages, and we have to like train our tongues. So this one kind of tests our ability. Number one, it's a simple sentence, but it's kind of really hard to say. Willie's real rear wheel. Bonjour! Your cheese eating surrender monkeys! Ooh. Willie's real rear wheel. Willie's rear. Where are you, Mister? Dang it! Willie's real real no real rear wheel. Willie's real real wheel. <laughs> Willie's real real wheel. Willie's real rear like wheel. Said Willie's real. <laughs> Keep it real. All right, let's try another one. Su- Susie Seward's fish sauce shop sells unsifted thistles for thistles to sift. What? That doesn't make sense. And if something doesn't make sense, it's not true. Susie Seward's fish sauce shop fish fish sauce shop sells unsifted thistles for thistle sifters to sift. Mm. All right, let's jump to another one. This is actually a name. Poor lady. I'm Jill. What's your name? Uh. Peggy Babcock. <laughs> Peggy Babcock, and you have to say it fast three times. Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, <laughs> Peggy Babcock. Oh, it is hard. Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Bag, Peggy Bag, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock, Peggy Babcock. Oh, poor lady. So if you're ever Peggy wondering Babcock. what to name your children, and if your last name's Babcock, say it out loud three times first. All right, I think I can finally stump you. <laughs> this is what I learned in Japanese class. Oh, it's a Japanese. No fair. This means Tokyo Patent Agency. Oh man. So it's Tokyo, Tokyo, Kyoka, Kyoku. I don't speak Japanese. I wrote it in English. Okay, for you. fine. Tokyo, Tokyo, Kyoka, Kyoku. Tokyo, Tokyo, Kyoka, Kyoku. Tokyo, Tokyo. No. I think I beat her. Ah, I speak Japanese. I got you on the English one. Say Dang unique it. New York five times fast. Unique New York, unique New York, unique New York, unique New York, unique New York. Fine. Unique New York. Yeah! <laughs> I won! Well, now that the sister is beaten, I think she owes me doing my laundry. I'll do your laundry today. Yes! Ah, man, that felt good. Years of hard work and tongue drills finally paid off. So, if you were ever wondering what an instant way to increase your cool points was, just memorize one of those tongue twisters. I'm a thistle sifter. I have a sieve of sifted thistles and a sieve of unsifted thistles because I'm a thistle sifter. Well, I hope you all have a happy, harmonious, hearty, humorous day. And if you take nothing else away from listening to this, at least now you know not to name your child Peggy Babcock. <laughs> what kind of stupid name is that? I'm Leanna Tan, and that's my little tangent.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends. Happy Monday to you. It's hour number three of the program. Today, we got a great show. We're going to be talking with uh, Kim Giles, who is, uh, she's, a, she's a coach, a relationship and life coach, and she's going to be getting in deep into uh, your relationship problems. Who really is to blame? Maybe if we took a little bit more blame ourselves, you might be able to solve things faster. So we'll be talking relationships with Kim Giles. Also, boy, what a better day than uh, Lumberjack Day. Hmm. I know a lumberjack. I know a lumberjack. In rough blue jeans. In rough blue jeans. He's the toughest man. Mm-hmm. He's the toughest man. I have ever seen. I have ever seen. With his flannel shirt. A little tribute shirt, to the flannel shirt, shirt the and the blue jeans the of the lumberjack. And if you watch the lumberjack show on A and E, he's also got a mouth like a sailor. <laughs> Anyway, uh, today we're celebrating Lumberjacks, and uh, Monty Python put together the Lumberjack song, which we will be playing later in the show. Stay Again, tuned. With our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. We, we, we're here to give a tribute. Also, it's Batman Day. Yo, Joker, you're in for it now. You're just a failed clown, college clown. You're doomed mm-hmm. to a life of crime. And this is the epic rap battle. With the Lego Batman and Lego Joker. I got more coppers than the NYPD. Alfred hooks me you up. know, not we'll everyone can pull off a, an epic rap battle. In fact, I, I kind of yeah. believe many shouldn't try. Take that. It's, it's hard to get a real good epic rap. So happy Batman Day. Purpose of Batman Day is to celebrate the anniversary of the character's first ever appearance which was in Detective Comics number 27 way back May 18 or 1939. That's a long time Batman's been alive. It's amazing how well he's doing. You'd think he'd be just old and tired by now wearing Batman jammies in the senior center. Uh, anyway, happy Batman Day to you all. Also, um, we'll be visiting with our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. Find out about that last second Interception uh, that ended the BYU West Virginia game. That could have gone either way. Oh. Gotta, I gotta get some insight. I need somebody needs to walk me down, talk me off the cliff here. So four games, and they still have not had a game that was. There wasn't more than a three point deficit, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, one and three. They scored twenty points though. That was a big deal. Yeah. Offense got moving. A lot of it, I think. What's amazing when they run their two minute offense. They seem to move the ball better when, than when they're just running their regular offense. Hmm. I'm not a I'm not a coach, but I do well, play one on TV. You you are sort of a coach. Yeah, I'm not that kind of coach. Oh, okay. It's just like I'm not that kind of doctor. Right. Kind of not that kind of anything really. Hmm. Rude. Um, so we'll we will talk to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Plus, a homeless man ends up being the hero of the day, saving many lives by pointing out a bomb in New York City. We'll get to all of these fun stories. Plus, be careful when you steal steal someone's suitcase. Yes. Was that one of the tongue twisters that you're working mm-hmm. on? Steal. I usually pronounce it with a lazy still. Steal hmm. someone's suitcase because it may not have what you think is inside. It may not have like gold bars. Right. 
might be something else. We'll get to that. With a cell phone attached. Mm -hmm. Stick with us. But first to Sadie Nielsen with the headline. Sadie, what's up? The U.S. Coast Guard rescued one of two Connecticut boaters who have been missing for an entire week. The two went missing September 18th, and the search was called off Friday before crewmen on a boat found 22-year-old Nathan Carmen on Sunday adrift in an inflatable life raft. Carmen was near the coast of Massachusetts, and his mother, 54-year-old Linda Carmen, has still not been found. A man carrying a rifle entered a Macy's store at a mall in Washington State Saturday night, shot dead four women and a man, and vanished into the night. But before the suspect's arrest, an official with FBI had told the reporters there was no evidence of, at this time of a link to terrorism. The suspect, who was not armed at the time of his arrest, said nothing and was, quote, kind of zombie-like when the police arrested him. Police are still investigating what the shooter's motives were for committing this act. Miami Marlins pitcher Jose Fernandez was killed in a boating accident early Sunday morning, the team confirmed. The 24-year-old rising star died along with two others in an accident off the coast of Miami Beach, CBS Miami reported, adding that the boat crashed into the rocks and was found upside down when rescue officials arrived. Fernandez was the National League Rookie of the Year in 2013, and earlier this year he'd become the fastest pitcher in history to record 500 strikeouts. And finally... An Oklahoma City mother, whose eight-year-old son was found to have a dead squirrel in his bag at school, said the boy took his father's jokes a little too seriously. Hobson said her son, Brylin, apparently thought the the father was serious when he repeatedly joked about making squirrel dumplings for dinner. The mother said in a blog post that Brylin came home in tears and apologized profusely, but she decided he gets a free pass on this one. She said, I can't even be mad at this point. He made the principal's day after all. Oh, boy. So this poor little boy just thought he'd pick up a dead squirrel on the way home from school. And, uh, (laughs) yep, he just wanted to make squirrel dumplings, but apparently his dad was kidding. I was just kidding, son. Also, the mom said, uh, she's like, we're not, she's like, we're from the country, but we're not like that from the country. (laughs) So. (laughs) Oh, my heavens. That's funny. We're not making squirrel dumplings, son. No, no squirrel dumplings. But if you can get a possum, then we're loving it. Wow, that's that's kind of scary. <laughs> Your kid's carrying a nasty old dead squirrel. I found this for you. Look, Daddy. Oof. Can we make Twirl. dumplings? Um, and that's tragic about Jose Fernandez, too. Jeez. Big deal. Poor Marlins. Yeah, they, they canceled their game yesterday. There were a lot of tributes around the league. What was he, 24 years old? Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, Arnold Palmer dies. One of the greats. Just turned Jeez. 87. Yeah. I like, mean, I think if, last week, two I, weeks ago. Eventually, we're all going to go. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, that's what's so weird about it. These guys are, he's just a legend. I grew up with Arnie. Anyway, and he was the good guy. I think it was, he, didn't he work for Hertz or didn't he have some car commercial? I think so. Yeah. That rings a bell. Didn't they name a drink after him, too? Yeah, they did. The, the old lemonade. Uh, iced tea. I think that's what it is, yeah. How would it be? Hmm. Having a drink named after you. I think when I die, they're going to have to name like Diet Coke after me. How about the... Uh, the I think it's already named Diet Coke. The Tipsy Townsend. <laughs> well, I don't know what that means. Do I seem tipsy? There's days. Mm. There are days. That's just when I'm sugared up. <laughs> the Sugar Townsend. Well, we got a great uh, we got a great lineup for you. Tons of stuff to talk about. Um, one thing we we just ought to get to right away: a thief uh, was probably hoping for a tablet 
maybe some other valuables when he broke into a car and stole a suitcase near the airport last week. But the 46-year-old man reported that someone had used a pry tool to break into his rental vehicle and make off with this suitcase. The man told police that there was nothing in the suitcase except dirty clothes. Go! Yeah. So all you get for all of this work is now he's got to go do this guy's laundry. It's like those storage storage garage uh, auction shows. Yeah. You just don't know what's in there. Yeah. Ooh, got I wonder what's in the clothes. suitcase. I bet there's gold bars in those suitcases. Nope. Just dirty, nasty clothes. And then what do you do? Bring them home? Do your, la- do your laundry to then take them and sell them? No. Yeah. Don't ever buy clothes. Used clothes. You're probably not going to make your money back on nope. that one. Not a good investment there. <sighs> it's so hard to be a criminal today. Um... What other headlines do we need to pay attention to, Terry? Last week, the big news was the, uh, or some big news, was Galaxy Note 7, the phone. Yes. The Samsung Galaxy Note 7 was catching on fire. I hear it's it's on fire. They'd pl- it's hot. There was a certain percentage of the phones, you'd plug them in and the battery would explode. Oh, There's cars catching I on fire. People had their phone blow up in their in their pocket. Holy so they're cow. getting like third degree burns on their legs. Those are tough just, commercials. Just some crazy stuff. It says here, in the race to sell smartphones, it turns out that Apple was the tortoise. Samsung was an exploding hare, if you will. <laughs> Sources tell Bloomberg that Samsung rushed the Galaxy Note 7 to market to take advantage of what the company had discovered would be an unexciting iPhone 7 from Apple, which is true. They, the phone they put out was basically Kinda the same. Kind of boring, just a different phone jack. The sources say suppliers were under pressure to quickly deliver new features for the Note 7, including a more powerful battery, which resulted in the production error at one supplier that caused faulty batteries, which were not uncovered during the rush testing process, ah. which led to explosions. <laughs> battery fires uh, were reported. Global recall happened. That That's something that's – it's very rare that you get the government telling you not to turn on your phone. Yeah. Or you get on an airplane and they say they, – they usually talk about your electronic devices, but they name specifically yeah. your phone – Name, model, don't turn this phone off. Think of, could it be worse advertising? You're on an airplane. If you have a Samsung Note phone, 7, I guess, Yeah. please turn it off so that we all don't die. Yeah. Thank you, Samsung. Thank you. We appreciate it. Well, now what they've done is there's new phones. They put them out. It was uh, last Monday. Yeah. New phones and, and the places of purchase and stores so you can take your phone back and Get a new one. In exchange for a new Less one. Less explosive. There's reports that those phones are now overheating. Oh, no. Did you say there was a total recall? Total recall. A great movie, by the way. Get rid of the Galaxy 7. And and they, they did recall and you know make a lot of noise, a lot of news, and people still weren't turning their phones in. They're like, yeah, it's fine. My it's, phone works. You know what? It's just a little hot. Sure, I can light a cigarette with my phone, but just, just a concern for you, everyone near you, whatever you're traveling in. Yeah, <laughs> holy cow! You can't. Poor Samsung, because the lawsuit weren't they in a lawsuit too? And didn't they win the lawsuit against against Apple? I believe yes. And yet, it doesn't seem well, it to depends. have given them an advantage. It depends. They've lost. They've won. They're just trading billions. Right. So it doesn't really come down to much. <sighs> In others, do you use, say, like a Craigslist or do you sell things online? No. No. I buy stuff online, though. Do you but buy I, it from, like, individuals or companies? I buy it from a, a company that rhymes with Cramazon. 
Cramazon. Gotcha. So a couple weeks ago, my yeah. wife and I were looking for a dresser. Okay. We went to the store that sells the dresser. They did not have the dresser. They said it would be- Target. It was Ikea. Okay. But they would have this dresser in a couple weeks. My wife didn't want to wait. She wants it now. She's having a baby. She's must nesting. Nest must now. do it now. So um, I'm trying to talk her off the cliff. Yeah. She's not having any of it. So she jumps online, some local- uh, shopping yeah. area websites. Sites. She found someone locally here who had that dresser. It was pre-built. She couldn't use it selling it. Bingo. So we call we text her, everything's set, ready to go. I show up on a Saturday afternoon. She gives us an address. We show up at a storage facility, drive in, they open the garage, I hand her the money, we put the dresser in the back of the Done. truck, drive bada away. Boom, bada bing. No problem. Those types of interactions have led to theft Murder, yeah, all kinds of assaults, all kinds of problems. On Craigslist is one of the one of the areas that it's really bad. So the question is, how do you protect yourself if you're going to sell something online? You send a big lug like you. The the woman I bought the dresser from shows up with her brother. Yeah, so right. Not so as not to be mugged by you. Now I show up with my brother, but he had the truck, so that was when yeah. he was there. So, um, but in Buena Park, California, the police department unveiled this week two marked-off parking spaces at its headquarters, where Craigslist and other such transactions can play out. Huh. So you say, meet me at this police department. You park in these spots, make your transaction in front of the police station. Oh, what a great idea! So that there's this perceived safety that you're standing there in front of a police station. It's a transaction do zone. Yeah. I like that. So they do that. And, and the, it says here that Buena Park police received dozens of reports of in-person exchanges ending in theft, physical in- injuries, in some cases armed robberies. Yeah. Which are common throughout the Orange County area in California. Meet me down in an alley, uh, in a dark alley at midnight. I'll be dressed like a clown. Right. So in that exchange zone, they have a surveillance camera. Love it. They have different security measures that way to try to make it more safe for people trying to do some Who's going to mess with that? Right. That's this is cool one of those idea. situations in which I think in my mind, what would I do if this happened? So I think maybe I'll tell the crook that if a friend doesn't hear from me within five minutes, <laughs> they need to yeah, they call the go, police. Yeah. yeah. That's a great plan. You, But wouldn't you rather just pull into a police station and just do the little transaction in the front of the police station? No, because I want to have that feeling of yeah. power. You want, And two, you want – you're a little edgy. You want to live on the edge. You don't know. Are they going to pull a knife? Are they going to shank me? Yeah, it's good to know. Shank you. Shank you. Okay, we will take a break. When we come back, Kim Giles will be joining us from Clarity Point Coaching, walking us through um, how you might want to point the finger at yourself when it comes to your relationship problems. I know it's a lot easier to point it at everyone else, but start with yourself. Stick with us. Interesting learning straight ahead. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you live longer and love stronger. Because I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. Welcome back, friends. <laughs> That's one of the great Saturday Night Live skits. What's his name? Stuart? Stuart Smalley. Stuart Smalley. He always talking in the mirror. Doggone it. People like me. Joining us to help us uh, through one of our relationship 
really probably one of the biggest, I think, life issues is where we tend to focus the blame and who better to teach us than our own Kim Giles. Clarity Point Coaching is her website. If you go to claritypointcoaching.com, you can get all the information you need about her books, about all of her writings. She's She writes per, per pound. There's more free, awesome information on her site than I think any other site per pound. Well, you're now in the tons. It, it kind of is a little ridiculous, yeah. but I want to help people. That's so the key. there's resources there. You're, you're doing everything you can. And today you're going to help us realize that we hold on. We may be the problem in our relationship. We meaning my spouse. <laughs> is that what you mean? That's what we all want to think. Yeah, that it's our spouse. So much easier. We had an earlier guest talk about. We think our our anger management problem is because of our children. Mm-hmm. When really it's ours. Well, and no matter what relationship you're in, whether it's people at work or it's the kids, if it's not working, we would like to believe yeah. that it's all them. Why do we want that? Because it seems like we that disempowers us. It takes power away. Right. But I, I think there's the subconscious tendency that all human beings have to be afraid that we're not good enough. Mm-hmm. And one of the top strategies to make us feel better is to look for the bad in everybody else. And if I can focus on all the bad that you did and and really just be like overly focused on how bad you are, it saves me from having to look at what might be wrong with me Hmm. because I can't handle doing that because it's too scary. It, It hits too close to the heart to have to own that I might not be perfect. And, but in reality, all that energy finding out that it's them, it still doesn't change me. It right. just keeps me exactly the same place. But I think the story of blaming them, I guess, helps me. It does. But in reality, the only person you have any control over is yep. you. Always. So you're the only one that you have any power to create change mm-hmm. with. I mean, we can sit with those loved ones and, and have – mutually validating conversations and ask them to change their behavior. But whether they do or not, we have no control over. So it always serves you to be focused on your personal responsibility in it. And and Matt, you work with couples all day, every day. You know that it's both of you. Always. It always is. It's never all one. There's no... There's no peace in thinking that my partner is going to change in a way that brings me this happiness. So... There's no lasting peace there, hoping that everyone will make my life better. Well, what you're really doing is you're placing control over your happiness with someone else. Mm -hmm. They have to behave different for me to be happy. And I really want everybody listening today to kind of own how often are you not happy and it feels like it's all of them. Yeah. Because the truth is you're the one responsible for your happiness. Your happiness goes on in your head. It's a choice you make. It's about how you look at the world and see the problems. And you can see them in a way that would make you more happy or you can create so much misery. Okay. You have a profile that you put up in one of your articles and had a huge – you know, uh, um, take rate where people, everyone wanted to take this assessment, yeah. which is interesting. I honestly thought no one would. Yeah. Yeah. Because it was it's, a little oh, quiz. you're saying I'm to blame. Yeah. Called, are you the problem in the relationship? And when I posted, I told my husband, I bet nobody down. <laughs> yeah. Cause nobody wants to know if they're the problem. So it was good news that it, we had so many downloads. People were open and I, I think it's so powerful to just 
sit quietly by yourself. You don't have to involve your spouse right. or your your child or whoever this relationship is about. This is about you owning some of your behavior. So we want to ask ourselves questions like, can I receive feedback without getting upset, especially if it's negative and it's about me? And that's hard for all of us yeah. to handle negative feedback. Nobody wants to hear that. Right. But it it if you can't do that, it's going to be hard for you to create a healthy relationship because the truth is both of you are going to make mistakes and you're going to have to give each other feedback or it's not going to work. <laughs> so true. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So true. <laughs> Another question. Um, can I sometimes be opinionated mm-hmm. and give a lot of unsolicited suggestion or advice? Might you at some point be an expert on everything? And, <laughs> <laughs> and they don't understand how good you are. Right. Because you're an expert. <laughs> but, but you really have to kind of own. Yeah. Is it? Do you think this might be an issue with you? Right. In conversations, do you do a lot of the talking and not a lot of listening? Because if you do, you might be the you problem. You might be part of the problem. <laughs> it's so true. Yeah. Um, how do you deal with emotion? Yeah. How quick and easy is it to trigger anger or upset emotion in you? Because if it's really easy and everybody's all, always making you upset, that's not about them. Right. It really is about you. But they should know by now that they don't need to bring up those things. You mean the other the other like people? My spouse should if we've know? been married for so long, they should know not to bring up my <laughs> parents or whatever. Isn't it? That's the problem. Is it's us, and so if we don't control our emotion, if we don't control our reactivity, this never ends. It doesn't. And and there are some great worksheets on my website about how to process emotion in a healthy way, yeah. if that's an issue for you. I, I really think for most of us, it comes down to a fear issue. We're so afraid that we might not be good enough that we're very quick to take anything as criticism or judgment yeah. or rejection. And, and that fear is so close to the surface, it's just too easy for everybody to trigger you. So I always say the most valuable thing you could do in your relationship is actually work on your own self-esteem. Would you agree? Totally. Yeah. Work on your own sense of, of peace, finding your own ability to get to peace quickly. Yeah. Start to see that your value is the same as every other human being on the planet. Your value is not in question. It's not even in your advice. Not at all. (laughs) It's even, it supersedes your feedback. You're still valuable. You have the same value no matter how many mistakes you make or Mm -hmm. no matter how bothered people are around you. Now, this I'm not telling you that to excuse bad behavior. I had a client recently whose wife said, no, wait a minute. You, you, you told him he has the same value as everybody else even when he makes mistakes. But now that's his, well, it just doesn't matter. Yeah, it's just, <laughs> do you get that sometimes? All the time. I hate that. Aunt. Like, so but, how do you deal with that? Well, but part of the issue is, well, right. So is that, I always ask, is that what you want to be? I mean, if it doesn't matter if, I mean, I guess we could justify it that you're human. That's what people say. Oh, look, I'm a human. If you can't accept me, accept me for my flawed, flawed and... well, sure, except don't you want, do you want to be known as the dad who rages and yells at his kids? Is that, is that the human you want us to hold up at your funeral? Right. Because so if my you question don't, is, then quit. Is this behavior working for right, you? Exactly. Right? Is it working for you? Is this it? Yeah. So part of the, the article that I published, that got published today on KSL, 
um, was along these same lines, and we gave three hints to kind of become okay. m- more aware. Let's take a break, come back, and teach us the three hints. Okay. I mean, we can take the assessment, too. If you go to claritypointcoaching.com, you can find the assessment there. But we'll also come back, and you'll give us the three keys. Three hints. Are you part of the problem? How to manage it, folks. Uh, stick with us. More with Kimberly Giles from ClarityPointCoaching.com. You're giving me the it's not you, it's me routine? I invented it's not you, it's me. Nobody tells me it's them, not me. If it's anybody, it's me. (laughs) You gotta love little Jerry Seinfeld action. Great show. Great show. Joining us uh, is Kim Giles from ClarityPointCoaching.com. And Kim is uh, here today to help us really understand the uh, it's, it's you, it's not me problem. Because that's what we think. We blame everyone else for our relationship woes when in reality we probably are the problem. Yeah. Well, I mean, they we might are have all problems, a contributor. Right. We can't have problems and really have it be all one-sided. No it takes two to play. Right. And especially if it's irritating you. If the emotion is in you, then it's your problem. Right. Even if it's caused by someone else. Just like – if there has been a, a drama or a trauma and you've been impacted by the trauma, sure, we could blame the person that caused the traumatic event. But the reality is you still need to process Yeah, you still the need, You always need to work on your yeah. side of it. And the interesting thing is people who will take personal responsibility for a relationship issue and really work on themselves, some amazing things happen. First of all, the pe- the other people start to gain a huge new level of respect for you. Mm-hmm. Because anytime I see the people I love really doing work and really changing, I mean, it, I know it takes work and it and strength to do that. And so they gain so much more respect that right. that's halfway to repairing the relationship right there. And, and for you, no matter what, if nothing else happens or no one else changes, you've changed. So your peace will come by your change, not the hope of your partner figuring it out. Right. And you're going to have a lot more happiness whether they change or not. You're going to be happier. Take that one to the grave. Yeah. So give us three. You have three points or keys, right? Yeah. So the first one is become really aware of the most common feedback that you get from other people, especially if there's a pattern. If you're getting feedback from more than one Mm -hmm. person that this behavior isn't appropriate – then it's time to step back and look at it and understand that a lot of your behavior may be in your subconscious programming. You're not choosing to behave that way. You may not really be aware of it. Right. But if everybody's noticing it, it's there. It's right there. And we need to take a look at your programming and maybe learn some new procedures. I mean, really, we learn what we experience as a kid. So if your parents had horrible uh, skills to process emotions. You learned them. You got to upscale. Yeah, you got to yeah. learn some new things. That's a great. That's a great point. Just become aware. I mean, and if, if you're getting told you're mean or you're rude or you talk too much or you're the devil, spawn of darkness. <laughs> that might be a hint. Pay attention. Yeah. <laughs> we also want to look for common 
behavior patterns that show up over and over again.、Right. And like, I'm sure you've, you've noticed this with most couples. It's the same fight. Yeah, yeah. They just have the、yeah. same fight over and over,、right. and over and over and over. Yeah. And it's not even it's topical, it's, it's more pattern, right? It's the pattern of behavior, not the topic that matters half the time. It is. And, and we show our clients so if you'll look behind it, you'll figure out what your fear trigger is, and you can figure out what their fear trigger is. And then you get to work on yours. Right. And not triggering your spouses, but working on not being triggered yourself is huge. Enormous. And I guess so, part of this is just being able to see, right? Once I can see the terrain, see the pattern, and I guess, but how do I overcome my insecurity of wanting to see it? Okay, so that's where we do a lot of work with clients. And, and、yeah. you've read my book. We talk a lot about getting. A different perspective about yourself and your value, and viewing life as a classroom, not a test,、mm. which means all of these experiences are here to teach you things, but they don't affect your value. So, it, from that space, I can look at those faults, weaknesses, mistakes, the places I need to do work, but from a space of, oh, these are great lessons, but I still have the same value as everyone else. Love it. And, and, and getting back to that. Helps you not have to come from a reactive position. Now I can just accept, okay, what you're saying to me isn't me. Yeah. Okay, good. So, last、yeah. one, real quick. If you always find yourself hurt and mistreated, and you, you be honest, are you in a victim state、mm-hmm. a lot of the time where everybody's always doing you wrong? The chances are very high that this is you. That, yeah, people around you do do things wrong, but if this is a behavior that's just over and over and over and over with you, you're always being mistreated. Chances are you're reading things wrong. You're taking things as mistreatment or、right. insults that are not about you. <laughs> so, if this is a really common pattern, it, it should be a red flag for you that there needs to be some work on how you experience things because the same thing that offends you may not offend other people. Right. It, it has to do with the way you've been programmed to see it. And you can change it, but the first step is you've got to take personal responsibility for it. What, what if you are married to somebody or in a relationship with somebody that if you, if you actually own it, they take advantage of your owning it? Like they actually、Ooh. use it. Ah, okay, exactly. And because then, then you can't be vulnerable, it seems like people would say, you can't be vulnerable and real because the person you're with, I mean, and it makes sense if they've been in a pattern with you for years and、right. you, neither of you have been real. Then all of a sudden, when you are, they yeah, they let you take all the blame. All right. So really, what we want people to do, Matt, is become accurate. And sometimes getting accurate should involve some outside perspectives. Um, which is why、right. we encourage people to get some help. Get help. Get some coaching. And don't or wait until you're on the verge of divorce. At the first sign of problems, let's、right. upskill and let's learn some ways to identify what's acceptable behavior in somebody else.、Mm-hmm. So I know last time I was on the show, we talked a little bit about psychological inclinations, which you can read more about on my website. But you may have a spouse that's in a psychological Inclination that is so delusional about their own responsibility and anything, yeah, that they'll、right. let you take the blame for all of it. And, and we want to help clients become accurate about that so that they aren't walked all But over. But you're, you're still better served to be in a position of informed and understanding, even if the other person keeps taking advantage of it. 
you're still that's still a better position than to have two delusional people. Oh yeah. Two heads are better than one, but one's better than zero here. So if I can get one head less delusional, more informed, you, they still may do the same pattern, but you'll see through it quickly and see, okay. Right. And and you're not going to be able to change that person's behavior, no. especially if they're happy to let you take the blame. Yeah. So you need to become even more bulletproof about your value, the worst behaved right. that your spouse is. And you'll be able to communicate it better to them, actually show them better than you would if you're both delusional. <laughs> And it only makes that's sense. That's our advice for the day. Try to have at least one of you that's not delusional. <laughs> yeah, be less delusional than your than your partner. It's good well, tip. Man, great stuff, Kim. Again, Clarity Point Coaching is the website. You can go find the assessment. Um, and the assessment, is it just is it under the – It's actually under the um, Natural Solutions page. Yeah. And they can click on Relationships, um, Relationship Skills, and it's under there. Sweet. Yep. All right, Kim Giles is her name. Check out the website, claritypointcoaching.com. Just Google her, Kim Giles. She's everywhere, and uh, we couldn't do it without her. We'll take a break. My friends, come back. Visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us. I'm a lumberjack, and I'm okay. I sleep all night and I work all day. He's a lumberjack, and he's okay. Welcome back, friends. We're going to shoot it down to our good buddies, two of my favorite lumberjacks uh, from BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jeremy. Hello, lumberjacks. What's up? I'm just thinking about pancakes now for some reason. Are you? Today's, you are I know. Hungry. I love. You got a rumbly in the tumbly. In <laughs> yes. Yeah, today is lumberjack day. Oh, nice. Made I famous. I wear a plaid shirt, though. Normally, I'm looking like a lumberjack. I know. I, I like it when you wear your buttoned-up collared plaid shirt. That's and almost the, every day besides and, this one. And those big, brawny, those big brawny boots you wear. Yeah. Hey, yeah, whenever I think about wearing a plaid shirt, like I look in my closet, and I'm like, hey, I have like five or six pretty cool plaid shirts, but Jerem's probably wearing one, so I'm yeah, not wear it. better not wear one. Plaid day, airy day. Every day's a plaid day for Jerem. lumberjack day. Oh, hey. you're the rainbow lumberjack, Jerem. <laughs> I have a shirt where someone called me that. I'm not overly fond of uh, said nickname. Yeah. <laughs> you, don't, you don't like the plaid uh, rainbow lumberjack? Uh, That's no, kind of a weird not, nickname. No. That was dubbed uh, no. upon Jerem by one Preston Norton. Yeah. Okay. That explains it. You super fan. Yes. Hey, um, here's a crazy question for you. Hmm. Uh, Did you guys watch that BYU-West Virginia game? That's not a crazy question. When did that happen? And yes. That was Saturday. Wait, again, West Virginia? (laughs) Three three points. Another nail-biter. Three losses by a combined seven points. Ah! Hmm. I, I think we see a pattern. Well, is that a power five competition, yes. Yeah, I mean, that's great. Tough games, Is tough, it? close games. Yeah, and and it's they've been dramatic. The entertainment value has been really high. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a disappointment that BYU is 1-3 in the first four. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, this is a really hard schedule. In fact, BYU is the only FBS team in America to play four Power 5 teams in the first four weeks. Holy cow. So it's a really, really tough schedule. And uh, apparently the offense turned on. 521 total yards. Yeah. Granted, they, they got into a hurry-up mode and were throwing the ball over the field in the Down fourth 16, quarter. Down mm-hmm. 16. So there were going to be a uh, little more space there. The context was a little different. But BYU made it a game. West Virginia fumbled the ball to five. BYU uh. had a chance. Uh. Threw interceptions on uh. back-to-back drives with uh. a chance to win or tie. 
Now, BYU went for two early in the third quarter. They chased points early. Yeah. Um, this mind, this uh, coaching staff has an aggressive mindset. I, I don't agree with chasing points in the third, um, but then uh, BYU had to uh, – it was a three-possession deficit instead of, uh, you know, at the end having a chance to kick a field goal for a win. Oh. He didn't have Jake Oldroyd, though. He's, he's hurt. He didn't make the trip. So that probably played into it. But, unfortunately, BYU comes out uh, – on the losing end of this. So they're 1-3 and three and now have a 3-0 and o Toledo team coming in Friday. Mm. So what does this do to you guys? I mean, you're, you guys are sportsaholics. I mean, I have my children I turn to. I just, I, you know, I have other things I do. Are you implying that we don't have other things we do? <laughs> well, I mean, we I, both have children as well. I, I know you go lumberjack shirt shopping, <laughs> rainbow shirt shopping. But I'm wondering, does this, this must just... Dis- not destroy you, but you've thought and talked about it so much. Do you guys need a counselor? I'm not. Do you need me? No, no. Th- I like evaluating what's Listen, happening. Listen, we're the therapists, Matt, here today in the sports realm. We're giving the therapy. <laughs> Great. <laughs> That's therapy good. means something's wrong. So I, I, I'm not a huge fan of like, yeah, therapy. Woo! This oh, is, you don't have to be excited about therapy, but yeah. let's let's be real, man. It's a tough let's schedule. They're, they've yeah. lost three combined by in seven points. I mean, it's it's not it's a crazy. Right? It could be a lot worse. It could be on four. It could be four now. That's yeah. the weird part about this. I get I get the sense though from uh, from Cougar fans that there's not as much disappointed this we- disappointment this week as there was last week. I think the last week it was like, hey, what's going on right. with the offense? And then this week it's like, yeah, that was a tough schedule. Right, verse four. That's right. the sense I get. Do you, do you guys? Maybe maybe this will help. Do you think some um, Doritos with black garlic pepper will be will help? Black garlic pepper. That actually sounds pretty good. Although at this time, I'm always pretty hungry. Yeah, I am too. I I eat breakfast, but it's. I mean, I'm that was I, I that was hours ago. They apparently in Japan they have black Doritos. The the Doritos oh, are actually black. And they're they're for Halloween, and it's black garlic pepper flavored. And I just thought if we could get some here, which we don't have them mm-hmm. yet, but yeah. I might order them to see if I can just pick up everyone's spirits. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, we have just about any flavor of anything you totally. can imagine. Totally, totally. Isn't it a great time to be alive? This is. I mean, it used to be you just had bland, you know, potatoes or whatever. Now it's. <laughs> or, or or corn chips, I guess, back in the day. Now you can have any flavor you want. Any corn nut flavor I want. And you can rub it in Cheetos. Mm. Yes. Does a yes. body good. So, um, okay, what's on your show? You're still going to do your show, right? Oh, of course we're going to do our show. You're, that's in the fact, therapy. We are going to discuss our biggest takeaways from BYU's loss against West Virginia. You talk through things mm. as hard as it might be. Yeah. You generally feel better. After you get it all out on the table. Plus, ESPN's Trevor Maddich will answer the following question. Is BYU improving despite not getting a win in the last three games? Mm. What does he think about that? And as a fan, he takes his analyst cap off and will tell us how he is feeling. What are his emotions Mm. purely as a BYU fan? It's good. That's going to get that's going to open up the dialogue which is what we need in a therapeutic setting.
Yes. Also, there are a ton of ranked teams on campus right now, including fourth-ranked BYU women's soccer, who won an eighth match in a row. Sweet. BYU women's volleyball roll in on Thursday and Saturday. They're flirting with the top ten once again. And how about cross-country and track and field? Mm. If you're not paying attention, you should be. No, I, I do. BYU has the new number one men's cross-country team in the country. Holy uh, According cow. to Flow Track. No, number one. A media poll. That's cool. Yeah, they had a great weekend. Women are up to thirteen. It's a big day. Are you guys? Are you guys going to watch the debates tonight? Oh, it's it's Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton, isn't uh-huh. it? They're, they're going to watch Monday Night Football, probably. They're getting in their they singlets. Monday Night Football. The time? Or are they going? No, head-to-head? no, they're going to go head to head. Oh, interesting. Because in the past they've moved right. the time. I have a feeling though the debate might win it. This time, oh, the debate. Oh, will the win. debate. The, the debate, debate will, will win it. the ratings. I will. I will watch some of it. Hope probably when football is in commercials. I've got two. <laughs> I've got two guys going in a really important fantasy football matchup for me. Tonight. And you have two little guys at home. <laughs> That's true. Jacks and uh... and they're back after five days. <gasps> oh, cute. Yes, that'll be a neat reunion. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's good. I feel like I had purpose in my life again when they walked in the door last night. <laughs> Will you be sure to tweet? Do you have video? Tweet tweet some video of just you watching the um, watching the debates with your kids. <laughs> that would be great video. I'd Hopefully they'll that. be in bed before 8 o'clock. Uh, yeah, that would be nice. Well, guys, you're going to have a good show. I can tell. <laughs> and I think therapeutically you're going to change you're going to change the spirit of BYU Sports Nation. Thank you. We we Really, I, I know I, I got a little offended when you asked if we needed a therapist. Yeah. You are, but you, you brought up a great point. Yes, we, yes, I, I need a therapist, Matt. I mean, when you guys... <laughs> yeah. I'm not in this to, be, to, to do the therapy. I'm in this to share what I think about things. That's it. That's it. I'm not here to make I'm just angry because I need a therapist. Yeah. I'm we, here to share my opinion. We talked about anger management on the show today, so if you guys need... Just go, go look up our anger management show. Okay. And... I think I understand why you're frustrated. Your your children haven't been there, so you weren't able to have that impact that you're normally having in life. Oh, this is getting deep now. He's talking to you, Smith. Oh, I know he is. I'm just processing what he just said. And, and now they're home. Now you can diaper. Now you can uh, get them ready, put their jammies on, give them their bath. All oh, that it was stuff. It was crazy. I mean, they walked in the door, and it was like, Okay, got to give the young one a bath and mm-hmm. get him ready for bed. His pajamas on. Got to feed. Because you've, you've been living son. the bachelor life. Got to lower the crib because my youngest is now big enough that yeah. he needs his crib lowered. So where's Ugh. the Allen wrench? Let's lower the crib. Got to clean Alan, this anyway. up. Got to do this. <laughs> Why does he have his own wrench? Yeah, that's. Um, see again, you're your dad again. Yeah, you're, you're not just the you're not just the single man. You know. My, old, <laughs> my older son, Jax, uses contextual clues to tell me what he wants to do. <laughs> so we put him to bed at 8.30, and at 10 o'clock, I walk up, and he's just like sitting up straight in his bed. And I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, I'm just – I'm rubbing my stomach, Dad. Do you know why I'm rubbing my stomach? I'm like, why, You're like, Jax? you've been listening to your mom too much. Just tell me what you want. <laughs> and he's like, I think it's because I'm a little bit hungry. <laughs> <laughs> then say you're hungry, son. That's great. So we fed him pizza at Aww, 10 o'clock, and then I put him in bed, and he's like, now I'm tired. Now I'm tired, Dad. Now And then he just puts his head on the pillow. Uh-huh. Yeah. Teaches the yeah. – A little, little pizza. See, you're good. You'll be healthy now. <laughs> good luck with your therapy session with uh, Cougar Nation. Thank you. Have a great show, gentlemen. Right. Knock him dead. Yeah, that's a big deal.
They've got to go create the dialogue, the context for all of the Cougar fans that are struggling, thinking, what's happening? But they make a great point. It's They've played four major teams and have only lost by seven points. That ain't bad. That ain't bad. Missed it by that much. <laughs> Again, uh, sad day. Arnold Palmer's uh, passing this last weekend. I mean, there's just certain people that you like and you think, wow, what a great guy. Great service to the community. Um, so our our uh, prayers go out to the Palmer family. I don't know. It's just you want you want guys like Arnold Palmer again. Life seems so much simpler back in the day. Died at 87. The king of golf, uh, it says in USA Today. He uh, died um, in waiting to undergo a, a heart surgery. And, uh, you know, the presidents loved playing with him. Just, just, a, just a cool, cool deal. All the way, also, LSU fires head coach Les Miles four games into his 12th season. Ouch. It's a big deal. He was supposed to have a pretty good team this year, and I think he's two and two, and uh, I think they're they're frustrated with him. Do we know why just, he got fired? Just, just got to win. Winning enough. Got to win. It's not enough. You're LSU, for heaven's sakes. You just got to win. And, um, you know, what do you do? It's a it's a cutthroat business those guys are in, you know, to have to win every single weekend. <laughs> well, as you know, we always like to end the show on a hero story. And our hero today is from New Jersey, Elizabeth, New Jersey. Lee Parker still pictures the explosion that could have happened if he uh, if he had dropped the backpack he took from a garbage can on Sunday night while a friend was buying beer. He said, I see it sometimes in the back of my mind, and I know I need to get past it, the 50-year-old homeless man from Elizabeth, New Jersey said. But I feel good. I'm okay. I'm grateful. Authorities say Parker and a friend contacted police after finding a bag near the Elizabeth train station Sunday. One of the bombs exploded while police robot was trying to disarm it. Other devices found inside were taken away by investigators. Police say that the bag was left by Ahmad Khan Rahami, who was charged with planting bombs that exploded in the Saturday uh, in Manhattan and Seaside Park, New Jersey. So if it hadn't been for this Parker, he just he was going through the, the bag, saw the bag, saw something was wrong with the heavy backpack, looked inside, saw some wires... And then, uh, you know, at first he thought they actually were decorative candles. Then he realized, whoa, whoa, whoa. Parker dropped the bag, went with his friend Ivan to uh, call the police. I don't like to think about what could have happened, but I'm just so blessed and glad it didn't, Parker said. I still have my nine lives, I guess, and I'm going to keep trying to live them well. So uh, Parker is staying at a local hotel paid by the Elizabeth nonprofit um, that helps homeless and working poor. So, a little shout out to you, Lee Parker. You're a lifesaver. You're the hero of the day. Just being there and paying attention. It takes a lot of times. It just takes one person to notice something that's unusual and uh, make sure they do something about it. And you can save lives that way. Also, just saving lives by being the organization that makes sure that this young uh, or this uh, Parker gets to have a place to sleep at night and some food to eat. 
Heroes come in many forms. We can't do it uh, without all of you. We believe you're all a hero. Keep joining us Monday through Friday, 9 to noon Eastern time right here on the Matt Townsend Show. Until tomorrow, uh, take care of each other, look after each other, and we'll talk again tomorrow.